0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 100
0: of the Common Descent Podcast. We did it. We did it. Triple digits. (laughs)
1: Like.
0: Wow. Took us almost 4 years. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Episode 100. We if you've been listening to the podcast up until this point, we had had a bit of discussion. Yeah. About what to do for this episode. We reached out to our our listeners and asked for suggestions what would be a suitably fitting f- a fitting grandiose topic. That would be a function like a normal episode, but still be worthy of episode one hundred. Yeah, still feel like it was it was a good pick, and I think we've settled on a good choice. I think we did. Today we will be discussing the origin of life. What what bigger topic yeah. could there be?
2: Yeah,
1: no, this is this is one of the big ones, and so that's the topic for the episode today. And we're going to be looking at this. We're going to have to come at it from multiple angles because it is a complex topic. Like, we're used to covering big topics. We've done that on the podcast before. It's not like it's Absolutely. easy every time, but <laughs> we've done it. This one's a little different because it's big, but it is not one question. It You have to answer multiple questions to deal with the origin of life. Right. So we're going to take a look at, first, what is life? Or what do we think life is? Or at least, what are we saying yeah. <laughs> life is right yep. now? <laughs> we're going to look at what is our Earliest evidences, you know, what do we think the earliest life was like? When did it show up? What do we know about that? And then we'll take a look at what are some of the common ideas, hypotheses, and notions about how life could have
0: started. Yeah, this is one of those great questions in science where we have a bunch of great evidence, we have a bunch of great ideas, a bunch of great hypotheses. And we're not sure which one's right.
1: Yeah, no solid answer. This is a complex, more philosophical in many ways, (laughs) topic than you might think for a scientific podcast. So we're excited to get into it. Now, this episode was suggested when we reached out to ask for ideas for episode 100. And we had had requests for topics related to this before that as well. And so thank you to our requesters who include Brian... Pete and Leon and our patrons Mark and Colleen.
0: Thanks everybody. Good idea. Good topic. We had a we had a bunch of suggestions for this. All cool ideas. They're all still on the list, don't worry. Oh yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> nothing got thrown out. Yeah. This one just is it this felt like the right oh, one yeah. for episode 100. If we didn't pick your suggestion check
0: in in episode 200. Yes. <laughs> we'll see we'll see what we can do.
1: <laughs> just almost another 4
0: years and it'll, it'll it
1: that'll be the time. Now, before we move on to the episode, let's get our announcements out of the way. We have a few cool announcements this time. First and foremost, as has become routine every episode, we have a Patreon. And if you are on that Patreon at a certain level, we like to shout your name out to thank you. And it sounds a bit like this.
0: Thanks, Andreas, Rhonda, and David. Thank you to our patrons for joining us, to our new patrons. Thank you to our old patrons for supporting us. Remember, you get goodies if you join us on Patreon, like this and more. Yes, so check it out if you're interested.
1: Speaking of extra stuff coming up, we're reaching the end of the year. We sure are. 2020 is wrapping up, thank goodness. Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And every year, at the end, at the close of that year, we like to do our Q&A. Our end of the year Q&A, where we put out a form for anyone to ask any question they'd like, and then we will answer those mailbag style
0: on however long an episode it
3: takes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've done this twice now, 2018, 2019. Uh, the form will be live as of the day. This podcast is released. Yes, So go to your computers right now, go check it out. We're going to put the link in the episode description. We'll also be posting the link repeatedly on our social medias, on the Twitter, the Facebook, and the Instagram. So check those out. If you have any sort of questions, sciencey questions, personal questions, silly questions, yes, it's it's always a ton of fun. All questions are welcome and thoroughly enjoyed. Yes. <laughs> it's it's always a ton of fun. That form will be live starting the day this episode releases, and it will be up for a month. Yes. So in mid-December, we will close it, and then we will take the next couple of weeks to go through them, answer them, record the, the thing for you, and then we will release that at the end of the year.
1: Absolutely. And then our next few announcements have to do with the fact that it's episode 100. We, uh, episode, We are in triple digits. We are actually in triple digits now we've been close for so long it seems (laughs) and now we're here and we wanted to kind of take a moment
0: just to say thanks everyone thanks this it's been super fun doing this podcast we're not stopping now no more to come and it's always exciting to see the support we get from people from our patrons of course from all of our listeners everyone who sends us messages on social media or emails either complimenting us or or asking us questions or every now and then uh, uh, providing constructive criticism which has been very constructive at times yes no no we have made active changes due to those messages absolutely non-constructive criticism you can keep that to yourself yes helpful stuff absolutely (laughs) it's great It's, it's it's been super fun doing this podcast and and it's so exciting to see that we have an audience out there that really tunes in and really gets excited about it. Absolutely.
1: Well, it's this, this podcast is something that we make because we enjoy it and we, we believe in what we're trying to do with it. But the community that you all have formed while listening to us and have interacted with us has been a huge part of what's made it such an amazing experience. Like it, I was not prepared when we started this for how cool it's been. (laughs) And I am always floored
0: by how cool it continues to be so thank you to every single one of our listeners and uh, uh we're we're not gonna gush too much here for two reasons one we have an episode to do yes and two we're gonna do that elsewhere
1: yeah we are going to have a episode 100 retrospective look back at the podcast look back at everything that it's been from episode one to now and just kind of
0: share our thoughts on the whole process yeah so we'll be releasing that as a bonus audio it'll show up on on the the podcast episodes list i I don't know that there's going to be a script i think we're just going to talk about Mm -hmm. how what it's been like to get here so if you're into that sort of behind the scenes behind the scenes getting our perspective on things check that out it'll be coming out not too long after this episode drops so keep your eyes out for that as well absolutely also for episode 100 we are going to be
1: doing a Patreon video chat. So we will be having a live chat with our patrons. So we'll be announcing details for that soon, so keep an eye's out.
0: Keep keep your eyes on your email and on our Patreon. If you are a patron, try it out, see how it goes. Hopefully have some fun.
1: Absolutely. And that will about wrap up our announcements, which means we can move on to the first section of the episode, which is the news as usual. That's not changing for episode nope. 100. Nope, we still got on. We've got newsworthy of episode one hundred. I think <laughs> every episode we like to round up some of the recent science news, paleontological, evolutionary biology, all of the cool stuff that's been happening in the science world to keep us up to date and to keep you
0: all up to date and to share with us first. I turn it over to David. Well, that's me. I'm gonna start with dinosaur disease. <laughs> Gross. This, yeah, it is actually. This is research. <laughs> by Tito Aureliano et al. in the journal Cretaceous Research. And as always, we will link our news articles on the blog post that goes along with the episode. And, and this bit of news is represented by an article in Scientific American by Chris Baranyuk. The diseased dinosaur in question in this study is a titanosaur. So these are one of the more popular and among the largest in some species of the sauropod dinosaurs yeah long necks long tails little foot style dinosaurs but this one is not known from a giant skeleton it is known from part of a fibula one leg bone from the cretaceous of brazil around 80 million years ago the focus of this research is basically looking real close at this diseased dinosaur bone so this involved uh, a histological analysis which is what we refer to when we are studying the tissue of something, which, in the case of fossils, usually means bone tissue. Yay. This often involves cutting a cross-section of bone and then looking at it under the microscope and looking at what all the tissues were doing uh, in different... useful for studying life stages, useful for studying growth patterns, but also useful for studying diseases. In this case, they looked at this dinosaur fibula and found that the bone structure was deformed including uh, uh, some inflammations, which in the paper were described as dome-like inflammations of the bone. Gross. And I believe the article described the bone as having a bit of a spongy texture, uh, which I I think was referring to the surface that you had all of this. The bone was wrong. uh, Laura talked about that when we did our
1: paleopathologies episode. Episode 84. Yeah, she mentioned that it gets a spongy, just wrong look to it when it's diseased. Yes. That's the best way to describe it. Just don't look right. She's not right.
0: Based on the particular kinds of not rightness in the bone, they identified it as a case of osteomyelitis, which is a form of bone infection. And indeed, in the paper, they describe it as an aggressive case (laughs) of osteomyelitis. Not words you want next to each other in a sentence? No, you don't want that. This, we see this in today, we see this in humans. Uh, there, This is well-known in humans, and it often affects leg bones. Not just leg bones, but often seen in leg bones, like in this dinosaur. Osteomyelitis, like I said, bone infection is often caused by microbes like bacteria. And they mention in the paper that it this is one of a, a rare example of getting to look at exactly how the bone is acting during this disease, during this inflammation, uh, this infection. Not just in the fossil record, where it is extremely unique, mm-hmm. but also in general, that this is a cool study where we're not just able to look at how does this disease affect bone in a fossil animal, but how does this disease affect bone?
1: Yeah, it's now just another
0: case study yeah. for this disease. Which is pretty cool. But the headline-making part of this <laughs> is that when they did their histological, their, their super up-close examination, they found that the blood vessel cavities are preserved in the bone, not the vessels themselves, but the space where they would have been, where the vessels, the blood vessels would have been. And they identified about 70 unusual shapes within those cavities. These shapes were described as worm-like. They are each around 100 to about 600 micrometers long. So to put that in terms you can understand, 0.1 to 0.6 millimeters. So, you know, picture that in your head. Which they tentatively identify as fossilized parasites. Gross. I reemphasize <laughs> that they, they, they describe as being phosphatized. So these are mineralized parasit- parasitic remains. Uh, if that is a correct assessment of what these are, they did not identify them more specifically. So in the paper and in the article, they talk about comparing them to a a group of ancient parasites that are known as leishmania, which are named as a reference to modern-day leishmania, which is what causes leishmaniasis. Oh, okay. Which are a group of protozoans, so not animals, not actual worms, but protozoans that are part of the broad group, the trypanosomes. So what that means is microbial organisms that often are known to cause disease. Now, as, as always is the case with something like this, we have these tiny little things, These authors describe them based on their shape and their chemistry as possibly being bone parasites or blood parasites specifically in this case. However, there's always uncertainty in situations like this. And indeed, the Scientific American article uh, references a couple other scientists, at least one of whom expresses some concern. And the uncertainties are that, A, this could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Maybe these aren't parasites at all. Hopefully there will be more investigation. And I think, uh, uh, I believe that the authors have said they are wanting to look closer at these. Yeah. Number two, if they are parasites, we don't know what kind of parasite. So that might be exciting to learn in the future. Number three, not sure if this is an infection or if they got in after the death of the animal.
1: Yeah, that this is a step in the decomposition of a corpse.
0: Right. Although the authors note that there don't appear to be any obvious breaks in the bone where they may have gotten in there. Okay. So, a bit. and kind of along with that one, we don't know whether or not these little microbes are actually related to the disease. Yes, exactly. That they're seeing in the bone. Like, these could be a bone disease caused by a bacterial infection, and it also had these blood parasites in there yeah i've got bone disease and blood worms right bummer luck you're just having a bad day yeah but it's exciting implications exciting findings these could be the first report of parasites inside a dinosaur's vascular canals and they could be the oldest occurrence of a bone disease associated with parasites and even if all of that's you know isn't the case, or even if that would get updated at some point, this is still a extremely unusual case of the description of a bone disease in a dinosaur that's
1: that's awesome, and such a cool finding. I get the feeling that it would be easy to be like, well, of course, it's hard to diagnose a disease for like an ancient animal, but we're like we have difficulties diagnosing diseases all the time because, like you said, you could have a parasite that has nothing to do with the thing that's making you sick also oh yeah or you could have a parasite that's causing the sickness you're exp- like there's so many variables and now we're having to deal with the complexity of like a doctor's analysis
0: on a giant ancient dinosaur
1: yeah which is really like that's just neat I like that a lot
0: oh, yeah well and I think I, I I think they mentioned this somewhere in their paper and I think I've read this elsewhere as well. That sometimes when paleontologists are trying to identify diseases in fossils, they run into the problem that the disease isn't fully well documented in living things.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's
0: like, oh yeah, no, we're looking at this bone disease, but there isn't actually a lot of good understanding of what it does to bone today, which makes total sense if you consider, I'm sure there's tons of complexity to it, but the first thought that comes to my mind is, well, yeah, we're usually treating living people. Yep and you can't take their leg away mm-hmm. most of the time to study what is going on with this disease. So it, it's, a, it's this interesting interplay where your fossil evidence actually can significantly contribute to the general knowledge of certain diseases. Well, it, it's, it allows you to do what
1: we often you know, herald paleontology for being able to do, which is it puts it in a long historical context of oh hey that disease looks almost identical 80 million years ago so that means these animals were experiencing very similar diseases that animals and potentially us included are experiencing today which is a new perspective like that that can completely rewrite our understanding of
0: what this disease is and what it's doing and how it's behaving and that's that's amazing Yeah, so if you think that's super awesome and you haven't already listened to episode 84, go listen to episode 84, because that's the whole episode is about that. Yeah. Well, my first
1: bit of news is about an ancient amphibian cousin that evidently was a lot like a chameleon. Oh. Yeah. So there's something super weird for you. (laughs) This is research by Juan Daza et al. in science, and the article is by... Our friend Riley Black in Smithsonian Mag. So this research is on a group on, on a specific specimen of a group called Albanerpetontids or Albies, which uh, is much easier. Which is much easier, <laughs> uh, as many people have nicknamed them. <laughs> These are extinct amphibians that have confused researchers for a while because they are cousins of our modern day amphibians. They're related to you know the frogs and salamanders, but they have scales and claws which are not features of our modern-day amphibians and not commonly features we associate with amphibians in general, and makes them look actually very reptile-like. And no one's quite reconciled why, like, you know, what that is and what they're doing with those weird features. Uh, They also have a long history. They range from the Middle Jurassic, so about 165 million years ago, all the way up until the beginning of the ice age 2 million years ago.
0: Yeah, so they've long history.
1: Been around a long time. They're just super weird amphibians, not very big, commonly just a few inches long, and have been kind of assumed to be terrestrial ground dwelling, maybe burrowing, so maybe kind of living like toads uh, down in the the underbrush, but we've not really had a great chance to study them in detail because their fossil record is very fragmentary. It's not a great record. Typically, the fossils are not particularly complete. So these are weird animals that we've not gotten a really good look at. Until now, oh boy. This research is on three albi fossils from Myanmar, Amber, almost 100 million years old, 99 million years old. And they have completely changed the view of them in many ways particularly because of one very well-preserved skull that is in very good condition, has actually preserved some soft tissue, seems to be of an adult individual. And with these three and this really nice skull, it's painted a new picture of, instead of being ground-dwelling terrestrial animals, that they're actually probably arboreal, tree-dwelling, climbing around with those claws. And the preserved head preserves had a bone known as the interglossal bone, which is which looks very similar to interglossal bones of chameleons, which suggests that it may have had the same firing tongue, projectile tongue, as they call it, as today's chameleons.
0: Very cool.
1: So now they're being viewed more as amphibian chameleons, up in the trees, catching insects and small prey with their tongues... Which has a complete inverse from what we had assumed up till now.
0: And what a cool, what a cool convergent case where it's not just. Because I saw the headlines for this and it was like chameleon like tongue. I was like, oh, okay, cool. There are a few animals that have projectile Mm -hmm. tongues that catch it, but also tree dwelling. Yes. Like a chameleon. What a cool combination of convergent traits.
1: And for anyone who's wondering, the bone that is being described here, and that was the the smoking gun for a a firing tongue. The way chameleons' tongues
0: work is that they are like a sheath over this tapered bone in their throat. Right, which I think is part of the hyoid apparatus, Mm -hmm. which are our throat bones, which we have. Yep. But ours are not at all like a chameleon's. No. And it just squeezes. The muscles
1: of the tongue squeeze, and because the bone is tapered, that's what fires it off out of the mouth. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to find a similar structure
0: that looks very chameleon-like. Yeah, which I think is different from how frogs do it. Yes. Uh, it's not the same mechanism.
1: Yeah, well, because most frogs just flat, their tongue is
0: actually like almost hinged and it just folds out. Right, right.
1: There are, there are certain newts that have like launching tongues like a chameleon, but I don't know how they do it. Right, right. So this is specifically similar to a chameleon. Exactly. So it's it's a very diagnostic feature. So much so that it one of them was misidentified as chameleon initially. Cool. So very similar. These specimens are also detailed enough to identify them as a new species. They have enough new spe- features and they are preserved well enough that they have been given a new species name. The new species was named Yaksha peredii. And they were noting that it also had other features than just the tongue and the claws. The eyes are also forward-facing, which is good for targeting things. Now, chameleon's eyes are facing whichever way they want. Right. All, all directions. When they shoot their tongue, they're forward facing. <laughs> right. Because that gives you that depth perception. Exact. To lock onto
0: a target. So, chameleon phibians. Very cool. It's, it's always... It, it is always exciting to have a group of animals that we live with today that are super weird and unlike anything else. Yeah, just and bizarre top to bottom. Very charismatic. Unmistakable from anything else. One of a kind. To then discover but that this is 2.0. <laughs> someone else had already did that. <laughs> Which is great. And hey, if you want a whole episode about that, go listen to episode 70. Yeah. Convergent evolution. <laughs> Another cool thing about this
1: finding is that the they noted other similar interglossal bones have been found in other sites. Ooh. And now with this new specimen can be reexamined and might connect to other albies.
0: Right Not automatically a chameleon identifier yeah. now, so now they have previous findings to review. very cool, well speaking of new species of super weird and surprisingly successful ancient groups, my next bit of news is about a new genus of multituberculates,
2: okay, yeah, no,
0: I was researching this, and i I realized we, i we we may have gone a hundred episodes and almost never mentioned multituberculates,
1: which is particularly funny because of how many of their teeth i traced
0: <laughs> during grad school multituberculates are this ancient extinct group of rodent-like mammals they are yes. not rodents in fact they're not even mammals of any group we have today they're not placentals they're not marsupials they are a outside group of mammals their
1: own group
0: they were rodent-like. There's been about 200 species of them identified uh, across the northern continents. Mostly they're known from their very strange teeth. Yeah, real which, weird. Which, uh, that's where the name multi-tuberculate, is. the tubercles on the teeth, are legion. There's many
1: of them. <laughs> Yes, yeah. No, that's the best way to describe it.
0: These ranged from mouse-sized to beaver-sized. They were around for a very long time. I want to say Jurassic to Eocene. That sounds right. Something like... like exceedingly successful group of, of ancient mammals that just don't quite fit within mammals today, but that are studied by tons of people. Like someone out there, I said, we've maybe never mentioned multituberculates and someone out there went, hey, wait a minute, yep, yep. Or now that
1: you mention it. They either did that and they went, no, you haven't. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah,
3: <We're> still waiting.
0: <laughs> we accept requests for episode topics all the time. This new bit of research is a new genus of multi that also tells us possibly about their social behavior. Oh, I'm on board. This is research by Lucas Weaver et al. in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, and we will link in the blog post to a press release in Sci News. These new multi-tuberculates come from the late Cretaceous of Montana around 75 and a half million years ago uh, at a site called Egg Mountain, which is a dinosaur nesting site. Dinosaurs, but also mammals. Specifically, at least 22 individuals known from skulls and skeletons, which is exciting because, That's cool. like I said, multi-tuberculates, to my knowledge, are mostly known from teeth. Yeah. That was enough to characterize the genus and species to describe what they all look like, to give it a name. This taxon, genus and species has been named Philicomis primevus, and what's yet more exciting than that is not just what was preserved, but how they were preserved. The individuals were mostly found in small groups of 2 to 5 individuals. The groups included a mixture of mature adults like fully grown adults and young adults, not okay. just adults and babies. Yeah, this wasn't like parents raising their babies necessarily, but adults of different ages, adults
1: and teenagers,
0: adults and yeah, uh, in these little clusters, which the authors infer suggests we might be looking at social groups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, the fact that we have uh, a lot of post crania, which is to say everything behind the skull, preserved, allowed them to characterize their arm bones. And they found that the features of the arm, particularly the joints like the shoulder and the elbow, are dig-worthy. Ah,
1: they were diggers. They were
0: diggers. So probably these were animals that were digging burrows. You know, like I said, these are rodent-like, so they may very well have been burrowers. So these authors are interpreting this evidence to suggest that we might be seeing communal burrowers. Yeah. That they were digging burrows, digging nests, digging dens, whatever you'd want to call them, and then a bunch of them would live there at the same time, multi generational
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: social groups. That's
1: awesome. That no, that's super cool. Because as as you were describing it, and I was I was wondering if they would be diggers because it started sounding like naked mole rats, which are like you know crazy social for mammals. But still, they have these the burrows with multiple
0: rooms
1: mm-hmm. and like little groups. With, I was started thinking of those compartmental burrows, and that's that's really cool.
0: Yeah, the authors point out that if this is a correct interpretation, this is the first example of social behavior in Mesozoic mammals. Oh, we don't have. A lot of info on mammals from the Mesozoic. I believe there there was a study that came out not too long ago about possible social behavior in proto-mammals. Right,
2: right, something, right. I
0: think Triassic or something like that. But this seems to be potentially our oldest known evidence of mammal social behavior. Which is cool because we don't know much about social evolution mm-hmm. in mammals. We don't know when it arose. The authors make the point, I think it was in the abstract of the paper, that this is probably a highly variable trait. It's probably come and gone many times, which I totally agree with. But we don't know a bunch about it. And I think it's super cool that our first potential really cool bit of evidence comes from a group of mammals we don't have anymore.
1: Yeah. A whole separate group... Well, multi-tuberculates are cool for that reason. Uh, they're one of the, and there's lots of examples of this, but the thing I always think of with them is they were around for so long and so successful during that time that it's actually kind of weird that they're not still here. Yeah, it's weird something else took over. Yeah. In like, that it's,
0: weird that it's weird that we have rodents. Like,
1: you, that, you. we almost, we almost had you, you know, m- interact with us, but you just didn't. And now you're just completely gone. And that's bizarre. And it's fun finding out that they had complex behavior, potentially. Uh, not surprising,
0: you know, that they were mammals. You know? Oh, yeah. And, and, and frankly speaking, they were animals. They were animals. Like, yeah. they, Th- this isn't uncommon.
1: Just because they were a unfamiliar group of animals. Yeah, of, uh, of course there were some doing this but that's a really cool way to find out about it. Right? There's like, multiple clusters. I saw, oh, I, and I can't help but picture them just like curled up and cuddled yeah. together.
0: I believe there was some paleo art along with them that shows them all like bundled yeah. in, a, in a burrow. And then they're buried alive. Yes. As, <laughs> as, as was their destiny. Yes. Because as I've always said,
1: the more tragic, the better the fossil. Yes. And Absolutely. Boy, this is a good tragedy. This is a great tragedy. Very cool. Well, my last bit of news is about pterosaur diets. I'm on board. Right? Already good to go. This is a look at the dentition, an analysis of the teeth of different kinds of pterosaurs to try to get an idea of what they may have been eating. Oh, boy. This is research by Jordan Bestwick in Nature Communications and the press releases by the University of Birmingham. This research takes a look at the microscopic tooth wear of these pterosaurs. So tooth wear is the markings and scratches and rubbing on the teeth from eating. Right. The damage on the teeth, basically, from eating.
0: Right. Microware, all, all the, the little abrasions and everything.
1: Because that can give you a hint about were you chewing something tough? Were you chewing in a particular way? You know, Are all the scratch marks going in a certain pattern? That tells us how you might have been chewing things.
0: Yeah. And for any... Uh, uh, unfamiliar listeners, pterosaurs are the flying reptiles from the Mesozoic. Absolutely. Your pterodactyls th- and such.
2: Yep.
1: And though there are toothless ones, many of them were toothed.
0: Yeah, which is the other important point. That, yeah, a lot of the big famous ones were toothless, mm-hmm. but there were lots of toothed pterosaurs. Hey, for more on that, episode 79. Absolutely. This analysis
1: looked at 17 different species of pterosaur and compared the wear on their teeth with wear analyses on from modern reptiles, okay, uh, a variety of modern reptiles. They said including things such as monitor lizards and crocodilians. So cool reptiles. Cool reptiles, the best. Well, almost. I mean, one of them. Come on, Komodo I mean, dragons are pretty yeah, close. That's, that's, that's to snakes. You're right. That's that's real close to your mosasaurs. Moni- to your <laughs> mosasaurs. Also a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> the analysis in the modern reptiles. Uh, Basically, what they were working from is that rougher tooth wear indicated a diet of tougher foods, but particularly crunchy things. So like inverts, beetles, crabs, things with a a harder exoskeleton that they were crunching through. And then less harsh, you know, more mild tooth wear indicated softer foods like fish, meatier things Mm -hmm. with less uh, that you're having to bite through. So that's kind of the trends they got from the modern reptiles. And then they applied that to the pterosaurs and found some interesting things. One of the findings that jumped out was the teeth of Ramphorhynchus, a popular pterosaur that was about seagull sized when it was full grown, lived around the Jurassic period, long-tailed pterosaur, and often pictured with those like gnarly,
0: jagged teeth sticking out of its mouth. Yeah, that's the common interpretation. I don't know that that's... Uh, certainly, the version that is often shown exactly. in movies and stuff yeah uh, it was a bit exaggerated. Yes. But yeah, they had teeth. Yeah, they had. They were toothy. And
1: studies on and this analysis showed a difference in the teeth of juvenile
0: Ramphorhynchus and adult Ramphorhynchus. Andrew, that's right, because this is one of the few types of pterosaur that we have lots of great specimens. On. Yes, we do. The
1: juveniles, the younger specimens, showed that they. Or they showed the wear that matches with an insect eating diet, mm-hmm. a crunchier diet, while adults seem to be eating a softer, meatier diet, so potentially fish.
0: Oh.
1: So there is a an ontogenetic diet shift from young to adult, which indicated to the researchers that the adults were not
0: caring for the young. Right. The young were hunting for themselves. Right. The adults weren't bringing this meaty food. Exactly. to the babies or showing them where to find it or, or anything like that.
1: The babies were hunting a different food source on their own. Right. So
0: this is like gators.
1: Exactly. So the babies hatch and then go off in our tiny rhamphorhynchus, rhamphorhynchosis. <laughs> <laughs> By themselves, and then as they get bigger, they shift their diet to an adult food source. This was also interesting for the researchers because one of the big questions that they were hoping to answer with this is, are pterosaur diets more comparable, and and lifestyles more comparable to reptiles or birds, mm. which has often been one of the big questions with pterosaurs. Like, which are they more comparable to? Right. You know, for a big flying group, the other big flying group, you know, famous big flying group, or Other reptiles and young that are going off and eating on their own is a more reptile trait than bird trait if this tooth wear is indicating correct behavior. They also looked at diet trends for pterosaurs in general over their history. Pterosaurs were around for a long time, from about 200 to 66 million years ago, when all the cool things went away. And their analysis showed a general shift in diet during that time with. Earlier pterosaurs eating more crunchy things, Mm -hmm. more invertebrates potentially, and then a shift generally, not every single one, not, you know, exclusive, but generally toward a more meaty diet, fish and meat, softer diet. And that part of the shift seems to coincide with the rise of birds. Okay, And that as another flying group came in, that one interpretation is that as another flying group came in, pterosaurs started specializing in more meaty diets as they got bigger
3: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and shifted away from a bug eating diet which may have been being taken over by birds right right so this research has indicated a couple of neat things both about behavior but also about the overall
0: evolution of the pterosaur group interesting yeah you said that the shift towards a meatier diet and my first thought is that pterosaurs also got bigger Mm -hmm. and when you're bigger you're not sustaining yourself on insects and crabs anymore you have to go after meteor larger things uh so although i i've also it has been suggested as you pointed out that the size increase by some has been suggested to possibly be in reaction to bird evolution yeah although that's difficult to know for sure
1: yeah that that's a hard thing to to nail down as absolutely that's what happened yeah. because that's but one factor that could cause
0: you to get big or start eating meat in a globe full of flying animals. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a very cool, it's, it's, we talked in episode 79 about how pterosaurs don't have a good time fossilizing, Mm -hmm. but because they were so abundant and so diverse, we have this really cool fossil record of them nonetheless, which allows us to do these, to, to study trends in pterosaurs which is a really cool way to explore this group of animals absolutely and i had never thought about people doing microware on pterosaurs before right i'm sure I, I, i'm sure this isn't the first time ever that someone has thought to do it but that's a yet another fun way to infer diets and thus one of the core aspects of an animal's lifestyle
1: when i like when it we get Weird info like, hey, the babies and adults weren't eating the same thing, evidently. Mm -hmm. And I like when those things pop up in these sort of studies because you, yeah, you never know what behavior you might stumble upon while looking at what they ate. Yeah. So, yeah, cool stuff. Very cool stuff. And with that, we're going to close out the news and get ready for our episode 100 topic How did life start? starting with what is life yeah so we're just gonna answer that little question
0: just a, just a real quick yeah, it, just you you heard it here folks coming up <laughs> the definitive answer after the break we will tell you <laughs> what people think life might be for for three small payments <laughs> we will
1: reveal the secrets <laughs> So life is a concept I think we're all pretty familiar with. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I've had some experience. The, the doctors tell me I'm alive. Specifically 31 years experience with it. <laughs> and surrounded by it. But life is a, as a concept, is actually much more difficult to nail down. What is life? What makes something alive? And that's a question we've been asking for forever. Yeah. Like we've been asking it basically the whole time and there's still no really perfect answer
0: or at least all the answers have issues. So this is hearkening back to our discussion in episode 98 of what a species is. Yes. And also our discussions here and then about what a fossil is. This is one of those that you know what is life and you know what isn't life.
1: That was one of the, that was a quote I found. (laughs) You know it when
0: you see it. You know it when you see it. Sort of thing. We all know what we mean when we say life. Right. But if you if you were to make a spectrum of things like where on the line from human to bacteria to dust to rock yep. does it start being life?
1: Yep. And that question is still being actively debated to this day. And part of it's a, there's a philosophical aspect to it of we're, ha- we're trying to define something we don't fully understand. So our first section, we're going to kind of discuss what do we think life
0: is or how has it been described and defined? Right. Because if, if, if the big question of the episode, and indeed the big question in a lot of people's minds, mm-hmm. is how did life get started? Before we can answer that, we have to know what are the features of like what defines what? <laughs> life. What do you mean by that? Right, if we want to know how a fossil forms, okay, what is a fossil? Yes. What does that mean so that we can break it down?
1: Exactly, because discussing the origin of life without having a term, a a defined term to work off of, that's what we're going to do here. What is life or what do we think it is? To start off, the things we know about life, and when we say life, we mean here on Earth. Yep, all the life we know of. Which is... Part of the discussion, <laughs> that is something we're going to have to discuss. Life on Earth is broken up into three domains. The prokaryotes, which are your bacteria, and the archaea, or the extremophiles, as they're sometimes called, which are the two groups separate from the one we're in. Both are typically single-celled. They typically lack a lot of the more complex, the features we think of with our cells. They, they don't have a defined, contained nucleus. That contains all their DNA. They don't usually
0: have like chlorophyll, though cyanobacteria bacteria do. Right. A lot of the organelles. Yeah, the, that, the that parts we have. inside the cell. Yeah, if you remember learning the parts of the cell in biology class and it was like the mitochondria and the endoplasmic reticulum, I don't actually remember the Golgi apparatus and yep. all those things. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they're missing a lot of those things that are familiar in us. Yeah, those structures. Those are found in the eukaryotes.
1: Us and all other life forms that aren't an archaean sometimes called Archaean bacteria but mm-hmm. archaea or bacteria right
0: animals plants fungi and the vast assortment of things called protozoans yes or, or pr- protists
2: yep
1: and these typically have you know once again complex cells in the fact that they have distinct parts mm-hmm. they have more parts and moving pieces inside them and are more defined they also are often multicellular. That's the group that includes us with lots of cells working together. And this is the typical setup for life, the three domains. Though there are other interpretations, more recent research, as in like 2016, have actually suggested that we might have more of a two-domain setup where certain evidence shows that eukarya, our group, is actually an offshoot of archaea. And so it really should be bacteria and archaea and eukarya in two branches. So still the three distinct, it's not like we've just merged, but we're not on the three clear branches that we had always pictured. It might be kind of two branches with two groups in one. So there is even some debate as to exactly how related or not related or exactly how these three domains interact with each other. And there are some clear features of life. Now, this is not telling us what life is, but what the life here on Earth All has in common. Right. And these are some that I'm sure are going to sound familiar to most of you. Every bit of life on Earth is carbon based. That's true. All the life we've encountered is carbon based, which means that carbon is the base, uh, uh, the base element and makes up the majority of building blocks for the molecules used
0: in life. Right, our proteins, our uh, amino acids, our genetic material. Carbon is the the spine of a lot of these molecules.
1: Yeah, carbon is a fairly light element. It also bonds very well to a lot of things, including itself. So it's really good at building things. And it also interacts with uh, uh, chemical reactions very, very well. So it's good at doing different chemical jobs. And so all life we know of is carbon-based. And this has led often the statement that, you know, all life is likely carbon based, though I found one thing that said for some people who think that saying all life is most likely carbon based, like if we find it elsewhere, that that is carbon chauvinism.
0: It's, it's very <laughs> carbon based centric.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but all life we know of carbon based. All life we know of is also dependent upon water. Yes. It is connected to the water in some degree. Even life that lives in very dry places, there's water inside the cell itself,
0: or it needs water in a more direct, like actually a pond sort of way. Right. And, and, and it's important that when we're talking about life, that the way we're defining those different groups of life, like you said, is cellular. Yeah. <laughs> and when we're talking about these requirements, a lot of the time, it's not just like, oh, you need a habitat to live in where you can swim. Chemically, oftentimes you are utilizing these molecules for what you are doing with your body. It's just that we've yet
1: to find any life that doesn't utilize water mm-hmm. and isn't dependent upon water. So all life on Earth is intrinsically connected to water. Right. There isn't life without water so far that we've found. So once again, this is not us defining life. This is just the observations we've made about life. One of these used to be that all life needed sun energy Mm -hmm. that sun was the base of all food chains all food webs but we've fairly recently in you know scientific history discovered that that's not true we have found chemosynthetic organisms things that live off of chemicals and need no energy from the sun and the environments they live in are not fed by the sun right and there's examples of this with bacteria living off of cave walls mm-hmm. in pitch darkness and then the famous hydrothermal vents at the deep sea which were discovered in the 70s so fairly recently and these are effectively undersea geysers of heated ocean water that f- that flows into the fissures of the seafloor becomes superheated because it's reaching the molten earth <laughs> and then gets pumped back out at that hot temperature pulling up tons of minerals and chemicals with it. And so you have these chimneys formed out of those chemicals, formed out of those minerals precipitating out of the geyser, and you get these structures pumping this stuff into the water, and there's tons of bacteria living in colonies on these chimneys. Right, it's a natural source of heat Mm -hmm. and also all sorts of chemicals. So that used to be, like, if you go find older books... It would list, as, and all life relies on the sun in one way or another. And now we know that that's actually not true. So we lost one of our big yep. <laughs> descriptors. <laughs> so really, carbon-based needs water, and all life on Earth is genetic. You know, it's all we all have DNA. But those are just the things we've found as common. We still have trouble
0: defining what life is. Right. That's what all life we know of has. Yes. But we don't know if that is what all life needs. Like you said, we thought the sun was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, these are all the things that we've seen life doing, but
1: when asked to go, okay, but what is life? It's all the things doing those things, but you know, what makes us alive and a rock not? Right. We all know the rock's not alive. You can ask anybody, and they'll tell you the rock's not alive, but why isn't it considered life and we are? That's an obvious one. It gets weirder as you look into some examples. It's also something that we didn't make up. So we're trying to apply a definition. It's the same issue we were talking about with species. We're applying a definition to a thing that we didn't invent, and we're now having to try to fit it to the words that we're applying to it. Trying to put stuff in boxes. We're trying to put stuff in boxes. So a lot of people criticize the attempt to define life, mm-hmm. and that really what we should be aiming for is a theory of life. You know, what are the the concepts that dictate life? Not what. How do we label it? One example uh, that I saw given with this, which is a, a a cool analogy, is what happened with water. Is initially water was described by its features and like things like it's wet odorless, tasteless, and it quenches your thirst. But that doesn't only describe water. Right. Like there are other odorless, tasteless things that are wet that you could drink. So that definition describes water, but it does not actually encapsulate water alone. It wasn't until we got a molecular understanding of water and truly understood that it's H2O, that's water, that now we could say, what is
0: water? It is H2O we don't have the H2O for life. Right, because you, you and I, I've seen descriptions where people will talk about, you know, okay, well, what does life do? Life uh, proliferates itself mm-hmm. and, it, it, and operates on chemical reactions and people say, right, so fire. Yes, exactly. Or you mentioned limestone. It's like, you know, limestone requires water, mm-hmm. it is built on carbon. Yep. Like, yeah, no, we, <laughs> what are the pieces that have to come together to make life if there is such an answer exactly to that question, uh, the the
1: issue with this that one paper said was that we're trying to define natural kinds, which are concepts dictated by nature, not by us. Mm-hmm. You know, life is what it is, and now we're trying to define it, but we have only seen one example of it.
0: Right, and the reason we're trying to define it is because we're trying to find the border. Yes, we, we want the boundary. Where does it stop being life? Because that's where our question is. Mm-hmm. That's where the question of how life originates is going to be is at the edge of the When definition. does it tip over? Yep. So let's go through a
1: couple of the, the famous, more well-known proposed definitions for life. Uh, this is going to kind of just be a list that we'll go through quickly so that you can get an idea for what the variety has been. Some of these are much more commonly used nowadays while others have kind of fallen by the wayside, but there have been a lot of attempts. One of the early ones was by Schrodinger, Erwin Schrodinger in 1944, who said that life is a thing that avoids the decay into equilibrium, meaning that all things in the universe naturally, through entropy, chaos, want to just go into equilibrium with everything else around them.
3: Right. You they know.
0: break
1: down, they, they... Cool down or they warm up. Right, right. To a level, equal energy level and state. Life actively avoids that by eating food and growing and taking energy in to avoid the death and decay into equilibrium. So it is something that is actively fighting against entropy. Mm-hmm. And the, the main tool of this is metabolism. It, it is taking in energy, metabolizing it, utilizing it as a living organism, and then eventually it. You know, it does die, but it right. tries
0: to avoid that by its nature. Right. Metabolism, which is a term I expect we will talk about a lot. Ooh, yeah. Is the process by which we, any living thing, performs chemical reactions to sustain its own operations. Exactly, Using different molecules from the air, from the water, from food, or whatever counts as food yep. for the organism we're talking about, forming chemical reactions that then allow it to move and stay warm and reproduce etc etc to
1: keep going now that's a a a much more conceptual yes definition of like yes that's technically what it does but also that doesn't really no you're not going to get any points for that on the test yeah no (laughs) one of these which is often called the picerous definition of life which is p-i-c-e-r-a-s and is an acronym that stands for what you will also sometimes seem called the seven pillars of life. Oh boy. Which is program, improvisation, compartmentalization, energy, regeneration, adaptability, and seclusion. These,
0: these sound like physicists. Yes,
1: right? <laughs> describing what life is. This was <laughs> proposed by Daniel Koshland from the, uh, the University of California, uh, Berkeley, in 2002, so this is not like an old oh, interesting definition, but you will see this come up, or you'll see these terms used as like here are all the things a, a living thing should have, even if they don't use the names right. the the term for this definition. I saw this pop up many a time. So very quickly, what this thing, what what these terms are saying is program refers to that life should have a program it is working off of. For us, that's DNA that is the thing that tells life how to be life it's what your it's what tells your cells to do what they're doing it's what dictates how that life behaves or functions and survives improvisation is natural selection it that life should be able to adjust to changes by changing the program the program should be able to mutate and adjust with bad program being left by the wayside and good program proceeding on compartmentalization it should be contained separation of spaces so that the living system is not just mixed in with the habitat it's in. You need to be a cell, not just water a in water. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be compartmentalized. Energy. All life requires energy. You need to take in energy to put off entropy, you know, coming and getting you. Yeah, you have to take in energy. All life needs that to keep going to maintain its metabolism. Regeneration. It refers to basically general maintenance, but that could be healing from an injury. Mm-hmm. It could be re your population. You know, that if some of you die out, that you can continue to grow so that you're not going extinct sort of thing. And it can be just normal maintenance for like aging. That as you're getting older, your body's still trying to keep itself going. That life maintains itself. Adaptability, which is not like adaptation as we think with evolution it is adapting to the situation right Uh, which i think those two terms are kind of flipped improvisation should not be natural yeah no i was thinking the same adaptability (laughs) adaptability is behavior or chemical reactions to immediate situations right it's hot i need to go over there exactly it's not changing the program it's not changing your dna but you're reacting to the situation at hand and seclusion which is that your chemical processes are separate from the environment around you. That you're doing your own chemical thing inside yourself, controlled and separate, secluded from the outside environment. This is like I said. These seven pillars of life are very often quoted. Mm. Uh, you'll see them on lots of sites as like you know. By the way, to be alive, you have to have one of the you know, you have to have these seven things in some capacity. But this is but one definition, and there are criticisms. One of the biggest criticisms is that it's only descriptive, not predictive. This doesn't tell us, you know, once again, this is telling us what life does, not why it is that way or anything. It does not include a theory of life. It is just describing the behaviors and functionings of life. So it's a list of descriptions, not actually, many of our, you not really actually a definition. Another very popular definition, and this is the one that I've probably seen Noted most often as like the definition or at least the definition most recently is sometimes called the NASA definition or the Darwinian definition of life or sometimes the chemical I saw a couple of times. And this actually arose from a committee held by NASA in 1994 to define life. (laughs) That was the goal of the committee was to try to get an idea of how will we define life. As we go out into the cosmos to search for life. Yep. One source I I found said that this was suggested by Carl Sagan, like this definition, but I don't know if it was him alone who said it or if he like sparked the initial conversation, but this definition is a much simpler sentence that actually includes a lot from the list that life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. Hmm. So let's break that down really quick. Self-sustaining is that it is its own entity. And as was put in one of the articles I read, this was purposely put there to say that it does not need continuous
0: input from a higher entity. Right. Be that a deity or someone caring and maintaining it. Like the the cell functions without another cell necessarily having to feed it or, or provide it with stuff. Exactly. Or something like that.
1: Chemical system is the chemical is that it, you know, that entails the metabolism is doing the chemical reactions. The system is referring to the fact that it can be, it doesn't necessarily have to be an individual, that an individual thing, like one of our cells isn't considered life, but the entire human is part of life, that something can be alive without defining life. And so that's what the system is implying, that it is a, it is bigger than just an individual example but a living system. And then undergoes Darwinian evolution is that it has something for us, it's DNA, but something that it can pass on to future generations or incarnations that carries the information and can undergo changes that are passed on. So it has to be something that like our DNA can change And then those changes be passed on and then be selected via natural selection for survivability. Doesn't have to be a DNA, but it has to be something that does that kind of job. A lot of people like this because as as they've described it, it encapsulates a theory of life. Mm -hmm. This theory applies to anything that functions this way, not just things we've seen our life do. And as they put it, this describes what we think life should have to be counted as life. Right. Not technicalities we've seen life do. Which is is the difference between the definition list style and this more conceptual, you know, more theoretical style. But people have still pointed out there are still issues with it. It is still vague in certain ways that might make it break down if a thing needs to be able to undergo Darwinian evolution to count, does that mean sterile individuals don't count? If you can't reproduce and pass on your genes, then you're not part of the evolutionary race.
0: Right. Our mules not. Exactly. Life.
1: (laughs) And how can you determine something is evolving via Darwinian evolution? Yeah. Because if it's in the moment, you're only getting a snapshot. And even if you're looking at it, you know, historically, how can you determine that it was undergoing what we consider Darwinian evolution? There's not really a good litmus test for that. So conceptually, it's more sound, but practically applying it, you know, if we were to suddenly find an alien life form, how could we determine?
0: Right. Especially given the nature of this podcast, if we found a fossil, yes, of or fossil evidence of what might be a living organism on another planet or something, we're missing a lot of that information. Exactly. These definitions
1: also become a bit more sticky when we look at the things that are close to the border or on the line. The classic is viruses mm-hmm. which have genetic material do experience Darwinian evolution. You know, they are mutating and they are rep- and the mutations affect the next generation of viruses. But they aren't reproducing on their own. They have to have a host to reproduce. They need a host cell to make more viruses. You know, so they aren't actually making more viruses. Other cells are doing that for them. Right. And they don't metabolize. They, yeah. they don't eat. They don't take in nutrients. Uh, one thing described is you could leave a virus in a room
0: indefinitely and it's fine. <laughs> it's just a box of molecules.
2: Yeah.
1: That so
0: are activated in the presence of other life
1: and that's yes that's exactly what one was saying is that they're only behave similar to life when in the presence of life mm-hmm so do they count right and I did lots of research
0: for this episode so moving on because no we don't have we yeah, there's we it's still debated and this is what we're one of the, the cool things about these definitions is that they get very quickly they get very specific yes. And we're talking about chemistry and we're talking, and the reason is because you have things like viruses where you have the molecules that make up life, the molecules that make up living organisms are found in things that aren't living organisms. exactly. And there is, there, there's this hazy border and yeah, viruses are the classic, here's a thing that sure looks like life, but it's not acting like life. Yeah.
1: And I found about as many sources that seem to kind of lean toward like,
0: no, I mean, they, they are,
1: you know, part of life. They're just real weird. And then others that were like, and, you know, there's life and then there's things like
0: viruses. Right.
1: So it's, we don't have a solid answer.
0: They're, they're parasites
1: of life.
0: Yeah. Not like this is a parasite of bacteria and this is a parasite of caterpillars. They are parasites of life.
1: Life. It sounds like some Lovecraftian yeah. it feeds off of life. <laughs> and then it also gets weird with like us, us humans who are kind of consistently and fairly effectively removing ourselves from Darwinian evolution. Like we're removing ourselves from natural selection by the way we live. And so at what point in the future are we, are we going to have basically complete control over our health and our development and our genetic situation? Well, now do we not apply to that definition? Right. Or are we capable of it if we were to stop doing those things? So does it still count? Like, obviously we are alive, but does that definition of life now encompass something that has worked its way around having to do normal evolution and is now controlling its own destiny? This is the working definitions, but as we learn more. And if we ever find a second example, (laughs) it's very likely the definitions will have to be grossly rewritten because we only have earth. So speaking of earth, let's talk a little bit about what things looked like at the beginning of life here on earth. Not so much how did it get started, but what is our earliest view and what was earth
0: like back then? Right. So life started on earth. At some point. Yes. Like, the, the none answer... of us are in denial that that happened. <laughs> at some point, life got started on, on planet Earth. And before we get into the questions of how and, and, and why and what went into it, let's set the stage. Yeah. What, when are we talking about and what kind of things might we be talking
1: about? So to start with, let's look at at least right now, what are our
0: examples and potential examples of the earliest signs of life? Right. We know what, we, we might not have a solid definition for what life is, but we know what life looks like on Earth. Yeah, exactly. Like,
1: we know it when we see it, even if we can't all agree on how
0: we should describe it. Right. And we have, you know, we, we gush over the fossil record all the time because, of course we do. Yes. One of the cool things about life is that life is connected. Mm-hmm. So historically, you can follow life back. Yes. And indeed, with our fossil record, we can follow follow the record of life back to get a sense of what the earliest life looked like what what does the most basic and simple maybe primitive perhaps yeah. oldest uh, primordial version <laughs> of life we should be in the same way that we are able to trace back horses to go okay how did this get started we sh- we can trace back the fossil record to go okay from the complexity we know today, back to when it was single cells, back to when life was at its earliest conception on the planet. What does that look like? What yes. do we look for?
1: What what evidences do we have? And we have a few that are fairly solid, uh, and then a few that are more hotly debated. The one you'll typically see as like, here is our oldest fossil, though technically it's a trace fossil. Yep
0: are stromatolites yeah stromatolites are these wonderful piled strata caused by life yeah it's 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 what happens with a coral reef where
1: they are depositing things and leaving behind and that that deposit builds up and has left behind and the things leaving these stromatolites leaving these
0: deposits are bacteria yeah mats of bacteria basically laying down their bacterial cement Mm -hmm. generation after generation.
1: And now we have these lumps that when you cut into them, you can look at the layers of that growth and of that deposit. And the famous ones are in Australia and date back to about 3.48 billion years old. Billion. Billion. Life goes back a long ways on this planet. Yeah, the, the Earth itself is four and a half billion years old the earth's been around for a
0: billion years by this point right almost every episode of this podcast has dealt exclusively with the last 500 million years. yes if it lasts 700 million years gets you just about everything we've ever discussed on this podcast it really does this is five times older than that this is old 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 but this is really the oldest
1: undisputable like everyone agrees yes this was left
0: behind by life. And part of that is helped by the fact that we have stromatolites still today. Yeah. There's still bacteria doing this stuff. Yeah. And, and, uh, funnily enough, famously in Australia. Yeah. Uh, was it Emu Bay? Is it Emu Bay? Oh, that there's, sounds right. Yeah, There's some pl- a, 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 one or a couple of places in Australia where you can go see stromatolites. And so trace fossils
1: like that, you know, something built or left behind by early life is typically what our fossils are it's not usually that the bacteria itself fossilized but it did a thing that then fossilized well right there are a number of other examples that are similar in age so still earliest evidences of life that are mm, a little bit more debated and critique and some of these are actually fairly recent like very recent one that is also from australia about the same time 3.46 billion years ago which was described in 1993 were filament like fossils so little little thread like fossils that once again seem like they might be the remains of a microbial mat mm-hmm. you know so like to think of microbial mats it's like goo that would have just been covering the the sea or pond floor and a lot of these they think were getting their energy from sunlight right that they are photosynthesizing and they were just it was a mat of goo that wasn't grass, <laughs> but it was—it <laughs> was basically a little underwater lawn of just bacteria goop. Yeah, kind
0: of algae. Yeah, yeah, is how I think about it.
1: Absolutely. And these filaments seem like they might be structures left behind by that mat of the growth of the bacteria, uh, patterns from their growth. But some have argued that these structures look like they might just be mineral
0: structures it's it's hard to sell is was this caused by the growth of life or was this caused by the growth of some minerals because minerals grow they sure do but they're not life <laughs> but they're not
1: life and i actually there was a paper that was describing why they aren't life and one of the reasons is that if you if a crystal cracks during its time you can reproduce crystals by sh- scattering them mm-hmm. and they will grow into new crystals but they don't carry over any of their the, their flaws are not heritable. Uh, that's right. That's right. They, they're they not <laughs> evolving. They're not evolving, but they can grow and depending on how you look at it, reproduce. Oh yeah. So and they're,
0: they're taking in
1: chemicals yep. from around them to help them grow. So some people have said that those look kind of minerally. And then there were a couple of back-to-back findings starting in 2015. One was a discovery of graphite, which is a form of carbon in a Zircon, which we've mentioned before, those are these are some of the oldest minerals on earth that yeah, we're yeah. aware
0: of, the oldest known minerals on the planet. These are extremely hardy minerals, and we have found a number of examples of super old terrestrial zircons
1: exactly and this one dates back to four point one billion years old. yeah, and the isotopes of the graphite, once again, a type of carbon seem like they might be a biological type of carbon. Now, this type of carbon has also been associated with meteorites. So it's not guaranteed, but it, it, it looks, it's a suspicious bit of carbon. Right. So,
0: Possible chemical
1: evidence of life. Yeah. So that this is the other thing we typically are looking for, for signs of life, are chemical traces, chemical footprints left yeah. behind by life doing their metabolism mumbo jumbo in that area. Yeah or in that pond, that environment, and leaving behind things that shouldn't be there if something's not lifing it up in here. In 2016, there were fossils found in Greenland that date back to 3.7 billion years, and once again seem like they might be microbial bacterial mats. These are also supported by the chemical analysis, which shows signs of life, and the researchers think that they are probably stromatolites. OK, Uh, just not as perfectly preserved as some of the more famous ones, but they show a lot of the signs which would make them 200 million years older than the famous stromatolites in Australia, which was super awesome. And and like the articles you'll find about those Greenland fossils were like, hey, new oldest fossils until 2017 <laughs> <laughs> um, when no newer, older fossils came out. These are from Canada and seem to be fossilized microorganisms that date to either 3.77 billion years
2: old
0: or possibly 4.28 billion <laughs> years old. That's a big... I wasn't sure what you were leading yeah. to. Yeah. That's a big difference. That's a big difference.
1: <laughs> so from what I got with reading the research, it's it. there's definitely... A debate as to which date is the more correct.
0: It sounds like maybe they're they're not sure what formation it's in. Yeah, or maybe it, the dating is mm-hmm. uncertain. That's what
1: it was sounding like. Is the dating has not come back with a really crisp time frame, which would make it still even on the lower end older than our previous oldest fossils, mm-hmm. or really yeah a lot older than them. Way older. <laughs> These are small structures, micrometer scale hematite
2: tubes
1: and filaments that seem to be microbial growth the shape of these filaments are very similar to those found on modern hydrothermal vents by the bacteria growing there okay there's even a little round clump with the filaments that is where the bacteria would have been attaching like rooting down similar fossils have been found in younger rocks so these are not the first of this kind and the chemical analysis also supports that it, it does seem to be life. There's light carbons in the fossils, consistent with oxidized biomass, as they said. There are blobs on the rock, which have a, a compound called apatite, a- apatite, which form when phosphorus is released by dying organisms, often. And the rocks contain a few uh, examples of organic carbons that are often released by bacteria. So as they put it, it's very unlikely all of these features would be present without life living in this structure. Right, right. And it also matches heavily with hydrothermal vents, which many people have hypothesized could be one of the areas where life really got its first foothold because it is such a unique environment that promotes that kind of bacterial growth. Right. But not everyone's convinced. Uh, some people have said the filaments look too big for similar uh, fossils and later fossils of that kind. That these are "quote unquote" the wrong size. Others have also said that others have also said that where these rocks would have been found, uh, they think got superheated after their formation and would have scoured the fossils off. That the fossils would not have survived the heat that these rocks went through, and so wouldn't have preserved. Right. And then there's a couple who just think that the researchers made too many assumptions. So not everyone's happy. And this is definitely one of the more recent, very old fossil evidences. But life was around by at least three and a half billion years
0: ago, potentially a little bit earlier. So the earliest life on Earth, uh, we infer from all of our evidence, is microbial, Mm -hmm. right? Similar to bacterial, way before there's anything else. We have this evidence of somewhere in that three and a half billion to a little over four billion years ago where life seems to be cropping up. It's also worth pointing out that if we're finding evidence of life in different parts of the planet, it has already originated and spread.
1: Exactly. No one thinks that these times that we're looking at for these fossils is when life started. Right. That's when life was visible. <laughs> well, it's it's where we have
0: found it. Yeah, exactly. But this time period is generally where we're looking for where when is life actually getting its start so before we move into the questions of how did that happen let's look at what the conditions were yeah what's the earth doing during this time what was early earth like if you're if you were the first budding organisms Four billion years ago, what kind of world are you being born into? The sun that, is a deadly laser. The sun is a, absolutely it is, well, because that's going to tell us a lot about right. Asking the question of, oh well, l- look out at this barren rock in a forest today.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How could life origin? Well, that's not the conditions that life originated in. Exactly. So let's let's look back at a time period it called. The Hadian. The Hadian. Which that's a good name. If you're thinking, hey, that sounds like Hades, you're right. <laughs> the Earth formed about 4.6 billion years ago. This is about the time the solar system formed. Basically, everything in our solar system is roughly that age. It all came together in the accretionary disk. That's another discussion. The earliest chunk of the geologic timescale, which is to say the first roughly 1 billion years is called the Hadean Eon. It is preceded afterwards by the Archean. And within this early time period, we have very little evidence. Yes. Because as we've discussed before, the farther back in time you go, the more likely the evidence has been lost. Mm-hmm. It's been subducted or it's been eroded or it's been covered up by new sediment.
1: Well, and as you were just saying, part of the reason we have the 4.6 billion year date is because we dated our sun. <laughs>
0: Right. And we've dated asteroids and we've dated other things in the solar system. That's actually a really good point. We do not have 4.6 billion year old earth stuff. Nope. The oldest materials on earth are zircon grains that have been dated to around 4.4 billion. But asteroids in our solar system cap out at about 4.6. I want to say moon rocks go back that way. The sun's a little bit older than that. Yeah,
1: the sun. We can age the sun based on its features and the kind of star it is. Yes. And based on the kind of star it is, it's about halfway through its life, which is
0: 4.6 billion years old. Right. And you can also, there are ways to measure the gas content mm-hmm. of the sun and calculate. The Earth is 4.6 billion years old. <laughs> we have very little evidence from those early days much of what we are studying is based on our limited samples. Yes, bits of rock and mineral every now and then and as we were just saying from other space stuff. Based on that info, we have been able to generally characterize these early uh, this early eon on the planet Earth and it is called the Hadean because it was not a nice place to be. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to be discussed here but I'm just going to touch on a few of the main points. Probably the biggest one, the biggest difference that is often the first thing people will bring up is the early Earth atmosphere. Yep. In the early hundreds of millions of years, the Earth's atmosphere was not at all like the atmosphere today. Very alien. It was probably mostly composed of gases released by volcanic activity. So in the early days of the Earth, there was tons of volcanic activity going on. This would produce what's called a secondary atmosphere which is what we see on places like Mars mm-hmm. and on places like Venus, I believe, where you have the the planet is burping out its atmosphere. Yeah, that's what the atmosphere was made out of earth farts, not, yes. <laughs> not <laughs> microbe farts like it would later. Yes, later on, and of course the difference is that today's atmosphere is largely produced by life. Mm-hmm. We have a very oxygen-rich atmosphere today, which is unique among planets and bodies in our solar system. The early Earth atmosphere, based largely on what we know of other planets, probably had extremely little oxygen and would have been much more rich in gases like carbon dioxide, uh, maybe methane, maybe things like ammonia, uh, lots of water vapor, things like that, which would make it a very different environment
1: to be in chemically it is just functioning
0: very different chemically and in fact you'll often hear it hear it referred to as a reducing atmosphere mm-hmm. instead of an oxidizing atmosphere and the difference there is that in our modern atmosphere the molecules in the air predominantly oxygen take electrons yes in chemical reactions whereas a reducing agent Gives electrons during a chemical reaction. And that might not sound like a big difference, but it dramatically changes what kind of chemical reactions are possible. It's literally the opposite process. It it sure is. Makes a a (laughs) big effect. So our early atmosphere, it's been compared, you know, I've seen it compared to possibly being similar in composition to places like Mars or like Titan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other thing about having a different atmosphere is that it wouldn't function the same way with space. Yeah. Predominantly, you were talking about that deadly laser. Yep. Our modern atmosphere does a whole lot of work at preventing radiation. It effectively, we have a force field. Blocking UV. To use a, a prominent example, at one of our best shields around the Earth is the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. Ozone is made of oxygen. Yes. Yes that's O3. O3 if we don't have an oxygen rich atmosphere we don't have that. So not only is the world chemically different in terms of the atmosphere, it's also being hit by lots of UV radiation. Speaking of radiation, there's also the point to be made that in the early days of our planet the sun was different. Yeah. The sun was dimmer. Yeah, it was it was younger. So there was less light and heat coming in from the sun. But then on the other hand, our atmosphere was probably full of greenhouse gases (laughs) that trap heat. There's also uh, there would have been a lot of radioactivity going on in the stuff making up the planet early on. I did, in my little bit of research, come across a couple of references to estimates for the temperature of the early Earth and the atmospheric pressure. Oh, because an atmosphere full of different stuff is going to weigh different amounts. Yeah, it does. Now, I'm not going to go into details there because I did not find enough to have like solid things Mm -hmm. to say about it. But suffice it to say, yeah, the temperature was different and the pressure that you experience at the surface of the earth was probably different. Yeah, well, it's
1: not only standing on what the surface was like at this point back then would have been different in the fact that you would have needed a suit like oh, yeah. a, like a uh environmental spacesuit to breathe and survive but also it would have felt different it would have been the air would have been pressing on your body differently
0: yes just due to what it's made out of a person in this atmosphere would not survive so alien planet and speaking of where you would stand <laughs> we, just very briefly there is debate as to when oceans started yep And when continents started. Yep. (laughs) There is evidence for water going back. I mean, some of those early zircons show evidence of having been formed in the presence of water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we know that there were bodies of water going back a good ways. And then by around the end of the Hadean, we would have had oceans. Yes. Uh, We know that there was continental landmass eventually. But in the early days, uh, in the earliest days of the Earth, not only was there very little but how stable it would have been mm-hmm. is uncertain and up for discussion. Eventually we would have had oceans, but very little continental mass because it isn't until a little bit later that plate tectonics really gets started. So like yep. the, the rules of the planet were different. You wouldn't necessarily have had a place to stand or a place to even swim safely on this early planet. And then of course there's the other thing that is extremely famous about this time period particularly the late Hadian, starting around 4.1 billion years ago and then going to about 3.8 which is about the time we're looking for when life may have started if you did have a hazmat suit to protect yourself from temperature and radiation and pressure and breathing mm-hmm. and if you did find a solid piece of land to stand on you're liable to get hit by an asteroid yep <laughs> because this is during a time period that is often known as the Late Heavy Bombardment, which is a time where the Earth and indeed most of the, at least the terrestrial planets, were under a much greater than today assault
2: barrage barrage
0: from space stuff. And the way that we know this is because this is the time period where the moon got most of its craters. Hey! (laughs) Because those craters aren't preserved here on Earth, but we see this evidence from elsewhere in space that this was a time where there was Tons of junk floating around in the, in the in in the solar system that would have been constantly, compared to today, very commonly hitting the planet. Mm-hmm. And every time you have one of those land, you're going to be producing damage and heat. And if it's big enough, you're throwing chemicals and stuff up into the air, possibly globally or, or in wide ranges. And it's possibly out of the air, like yeah. into space again. So the... This is a time period where there's lots of volcanic... The, the earth underneath your feet is erupting. The air above you is dropping bombs. You can't breathe. You, like us. Yes. There's no oxygen. The atmosphere chemically is different. The pressure, the temperature, there's no place to stand. Like, this was not at all like the earth we see today. So, and, and this make really makes it that much more complicated when we're trying to ask this question of oh well how does life get started it is very difficult to find a place on earth today that shows us what early earth would have been like yeah that mirrors it at all so even if we could do some sort of experiment and see like oh well we found out how life might originate in the desert okay but that's a wholly different environment the rules are All out the window. Than this veritable hellscape that was the first half billion to a billion years of the planet Earth. Yep. Which is why so much of the discussion of how life may have originated is reliant on studies of other celestial bodies. Yeah. (laughs) Other moons and other planets, because yeah, Titan over by Saturn might be a better example of the conditions that Earth life started in than earth is today
2: yeah
1: whenever you know whenever the question seriously is asked of what might alien life be like that's a entirely impossible question to actually answer because we don't have any clue like there's so many factors what is their star like what is the planet like how far away is it from that weird star? like so many things we can't anticipate what the life's going to look like there that's almost kind of what we're having to do with our own planet This is not a recognizable place. We're being asked to visualize what life was like on a planet that was
0: effectively not our own. And which also doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's gone. (laughs) That planet has dramatically changed. And ironically, the major reason why it has changed, particularly when it comes to the composition of atmosphere and ocean where all life tends to live, is because there's life there. Yeah, because
1: it was terraformed. (laughs)
0: Yeah. By the life that somehow came to be. Which is funny because Terra means Earth, and if Earth was... T- if the planet was terraformed by life to become Earth,
2: what was it before? Ooh, the Earth before the... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Earth that was. It's like, it's all like Firefly now. And that's the other really important point, and this, this kind of gets into another question that we may bring up later, which is that the chemistry of the Earth today is intrinsically built on life exactly our atmosphere is a life-rich atmosphere the reason we have an oxygen-rich atmosphere is because of life
1: and that really is one of the core paradoxes that the answer for how did life come to be is dealing with is the fact that all the life we know today functions in a world run by life so there is no life today that functions without the existence of other life around it so we have to try to figure out how these systems
0: came to be without these systems being in place right it's like looking at a very complex machine where all the parts that have been built upon each other and now everything works together Yeah, it all relies on each other part and if you pull out a cog it all falls apart but it didn't start that way exactly And so we'll look at
1: what are some of our ideas for how that machine could have been built after the break. So before we dive into what are some of our proposals for how we can go from a world without life to a world with life, let's talk about what is the concept we're actually discussing. The concept of the origination of life is known as abiogenesis. Yes. Going from inanimate to animate objects.
0: Whatever that means.
1: Yeah. Going from things that are not alive, chemicals, minerals, things that are not life, somehow life has to come from those. And that process is known as abiogenesis. That's the term we've given to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll often see this, though, called origin of life or OOL. 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 So you'll see it as big O, little O, big L. There's no P in it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And so the origin of life, abiogenesis, is this process of going from a purely inanimate world to suddenly having living, metabolizing, evolving things. Now, another term you'll see associated with the origin of life a lot of the time is LUCA.
0: L-U-C-A. The Last Universal Common Ancestor. So we talk on this. So the title of the podcast is Common Descent. Yep. Which is a reference to the fact that life comes from common ancestry. And we talk about this all the time where it's like, oh, well, there was a population, a species that gave rise to all the mammals that gave rise to all the tetrapods all these snakes all these bugs luca is the species the population the the the
1: thing
3: Thing.
0: (laughs) that gave rise to life
1: so those domains we talked about at the beginning of the episode the eukaryotes and the prokaryotes the bacteria and the archaea when you go down to where those domains branch from each other that's where Luca is. Right. And Luca, we should point out, is a hypothesis. It's a hypothetical, conceptual ancestor. That should
0: have existed. Because mm-hmm.
1: be- all of our evidence shows that we're
0: related. Yep. That we are, that life is monophyletic, right? Life arose this one time and we are all descended from it. Or at the very least, all life today. Descended from one source of life. Descended from one source. And that is the first ancestor mm-hmm. that group is the first ancestral microbial mat or whatever yep that all other life derives from and it is good to know that
1: luca may very well not be the origin of life and a lot of scientists assume that it is not that right. life probably originated before luca and that luca may not be a direct line from that original origin that right Life could have popped up. Those lives could have gone extinct and other life popped up. And Luca is the one that led to
0: all the life we know now. Right. A a great comparison to it might be, go back to episode 37 about birds. All living birds have a common ancestor that is not the first bird. Exactly. Because there were other more, right? You had the earliest birds and they gave rise to a bunch of different types of birds And then among that early bird diversity was the ancestor of all modern birds. Mm -hmm. So you could have had a diversity of early life forms, either all unified, all together, or multiple patches. Because we're talking about life originating, so we don't know that it couldn't have happened multiple times. (laughs) And somewhere in there should be the population that was successful enough that it gave rise to prokaryotes as we know them and eukaryotes as we know them. Exactly. That's LUCA. Now, as you said, LUCA is conceptual; it is a hypothetical
1: ancient ancestor. But there are some things that we potentially know about what this ancestor might have been like. So we don't have a fossil; we don't have evidence; we don't have solid physical evidence. But if it is the ancestor to all life, we have all of our DNA. Yeah. And we can look at the things we all share, all we life share with one another and potentially, hypothetically, theoretically, if it is shared across life, it
0: very likely or very well may be from Luca, and from our shared ancestor. And this is how we interpret common ancestors in all different groups. of life. Exactly. The earliest monkeys, the earliest horses, we can do that with, okay, well, let's look at the traits we have today. Everyone that should have come from it. Yep. And what do they share? what we we make an ancestral
1: state reconstruction and so we've done that with Luca. Uh, they've made a few attempts uh, from with differing techniques. Uh, the first one was what genes are shared across all genomes, all life DNA effectively and 30 genes were identified that should have belonged to Luca, which is not enough to really tell us anything. Yeah that's not actually enough to tell us anything about Luca, but that those are shared due to ancestry. Right. Luca had at least 30 genes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Another one said, okay, what genes are found in at least a member of both the eukaryotes and the prokaryotes, the two, right. The, the, the two major groups of the three domains and 11,000 were identified that potentially could have belonged to Luca, which most people say it's not likely. All of those did. Right. That's too big a number to just for all of them to be hits. And this is messed up by lateral gene transfer. Sure is. Bacteria and archaea can trade genetics between individuals, just to be like, here, put that in your genome, yeah. and here, incorporate this into your biology. And they can. There are even examples of it happening across domains. So how? widely the commonality of some of these genes are likely not due to ancestry, but due to sharing. Right. Due to lateral gene transfer. So the most recent attempt took a, a a similar look, but with more caveats, they tried to look at genes that could only be determined to not have been shared via lateral gene transfer, you know, that they could, that showed all the signs of not being shared that way. They had to be present in at least two groups of both archaea and bacteria. Mm -hmm. And using this, this was in 2018 that this study happened, they whittled that 11,000 down to 355. Cool. Which is a much more usable number. And because of how strict they were, they they likely cut out more than would actually be hits for LUCA. So this is actually probably smaller than the number of genes that are from LUCA due to their over-avoiding lateral gene transfer, but this small number could also be due to a simpler genome that Luca may have had less genes because it was early life. But the genes that they found were actually able to tell us something potentially about how Luca lived, which is one of the coolest sentences I've ever gotten to say (laughs) on the podcast. The genetics of Luca that we have identified with this analysis are similar and show that it would have used molecular hydrogen as its energy source which makes it very similar and comparable to bacteria on hydrothermal vents
0: interesting
1: so the current the current evidence shows that luca was either living on a hydrothermal vent or living in a very similar extreme habitat to a hydrothermal vent right so luca and this is not a huge surprise cuz those vents have been pointed at as like that <laughs> That sure does seem like a good place for life to start and for like ancestral life to start. But we now have what seems to be genetic
0: support. Very cool. Which is so awesome. Very cool. Yeah. You mentioned early on that uh, a lot of archaea or archaeobacteria archaea are called extremophiles Mm because they live in extreme conditions and it should not come as a surprise given what we said about the early earth that we often look to extremophiles to see how life might survive in the early days, because that was extreme. Exactly. <laughs> now,
1: we don't have an age for Luca. We estimate that Luca probably would be found somewhere between two and four billion years old, but we don't know. And a lot of people do not consider that Luca is the origin, the first origin of life. Right. So this term will come up when you look up origin of life a lot of time, but it is not actually answering the question, how did life start?
0: right it's it's similar to uh i've seen this come up with people talk about mitochondrial eve yeah so this is this idea that came up several years ago where a group of researchers looked at all human genetics and traced the maternal lineage back to a common ancestor like a single individual mm-hmm. whose genes became spread through the population and then and so on and so on as mitochondrial eve and i see this come up misinterpreted from people suggesting this is the first human. Yeah, like we found the first human being. She lived, that person lived in a population of humans. Mm -hmm. It's just that they're the only one of that population whose genes survive to today. Luca's like that. Luca almost certainly lived in a population of early life and all the others genetically are not around anymore.
1: Exactly. Well, it's like we have a coelacanth today, but that's not what the earliest coelacanths were like. Right. This is the one that made it. Luca is the only one that left behind today's lineage of life. Right. But for all we know, there could have been a variety of early originating life forms. So now let's take a look at that question. How the, the true question of abiogenesis, how can life come about from no life? That's really the core. How does it come to be? And There are a couple of key things that people look at when trying to answer this question. Uh, Many of them are very chemistry heavy, so we're not going to be diving into all of the chemical analyses, but there are a few major components that today seem pretty much to be necessary for the life we know. And these are the, the building blocks of life, literally. One is lipids, which are key in the cell membranes of life we know carbohydrates, which make up sugars and cellulose, amino acids, which are important for protein metabolism, and nucleic acids, which is DNA and RNA.
0: See, so these are the biomolecules that seem to be the core, the, the building blocks and
1: tools of life. And one of the big issues is that, like we were saying earlier, a lot of these in the current biochemistry Need the others to function. So, for instance, our DNA is the the biological molecule that holds the information to tell us to tell our cells what proteins to make. But DNA and RNA cannot copy with copy themselves, duplicate themselves without the help of proteins yep. that they made. So, you know, chicken or egg, which one made the first, which one was being used by the like you can't have one without the other in the way life works now. And as far as we can tell, none of these will do the jobs that we see them doing in life without the fatty lipids to create the cell membrane. So if you don't have that membrane, you can't have life, but protein-based enzymes are needed to produce that membrane. So we have these parts, these key integral parts that are building each other and helping each other function. In the way life works, but
0: that can't have been how it was working before life happened. <laughs> right. This this harkens back to uh, episode sixty eight. We talked about the evolution of eyes. Yes. And this is a, another famous example of this, where when people first started to ask this question of, well, how did eyes evolve? Well, eyes as we know them today are very similar. All the parts are working Super together, complex and... and relying on each other. And what we have found, and this is the case with so many evolutionary stories is that in the early days it wasn't functioning the same way
1: yes it wasn't doing the same job or it wasn't doing the job in
0: the same way at all that the functioning has changed to produce what we see today and this has a similar Mm -hmm. like we can't get an answer if we limit ourselves to thinking of, of them as functioning the same way they do right now exactly
1: And so that's one of the big questions and I saw it stated in one of the sources that any respectable, any reliable or any uh, hypothesis for the origin of life that should be taken seriously needs to address the origin of these building blocks. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, then it can be thrown out the window because this is really the key, the linchpin, biological molecules. How did they come to be without biology? Now, one of the kind of easiest answers, and one that you will see very often, is that they came here ready-made from space. Right. <laughs> this is called the panspermia hypothesis, and it speculates the older versions of it speculated that life itself was seeded
0: on Earth from space, from right. and, and other planets or other bodies. Bacteria rode an asteroid, mm-hmm. crashed here, and now we have life. Like the dude from Dr.
1: Strange, <laughs> <laughs> Just down into the ocean.
3: <laughs>
0: And this is an old idea. This goes
1: back to a, a Greek philosopher, Anax, Anaxagoras, 500 BC, that first suggested life was seeded on Earth from elsewhere in the universe. And so this has been around for a long time. It's kind of an obvious answer of... And, and, and also a non-answer. And o- it's, it's, it is, how did life start
0: on Earth? It didn't. Right.
1: You know, which is, that
0: is a valid thing oh, yeah. to look into. Could have, we, there are cases of asteroids on Earth, meteorites on Earth, that came from Mars. Yes, we have Martian For meteorites. example. Yeah. And we do
1: have meteorites that come down with organic compounds. Yes. The same compounds we're looking for, but not necessarily formed by life. Because they can be formed in other ways, as we'll go into. So th- this is a, a, a hypothesis that is not taken is not typically considered viable by most especially in the form that life was brought here a more modern take on it is that the building blocks that meteorites with amino acids meteorites with nucleic acids meteorites with some of the more complex proteins came down and that the reason they had them is that those things were able to form in space in a different way than they might form naturally or
0: without help here and we have found certain biomolecules on asteroids absolutely that has been seen because things in space are constantly being
1: bombarded by cosmic radiation from stars so there's lots of energy to catalyze into jumpstart reactions chemical
0: reactions and that's a, an important point is the ingredients of life are found in non-life Exactly. Like the elements, the molecules, the compounds that we're looking for are often formed outside of life. So this is
1: a hypothesis that is, it. if you go Google origin of life, there's going to be a section on this. Mm-hmm. Like it is still discussed because it, we can't rule it out because we are finding that there is indeed biological style molecules coming down on rocks from space. We do see planetary debris from mars coming down to earth so the possibility that we're getting stuff from other planets is very real as we were mentioning a lot of other planets in the solar a lot of other bodies in the solar system have similar features to what early earth had so it's not like it's impossible that stuff could be growing there or could have grown there at some point point. and there is evidence that like we have done tests with microbes in space and there are things that can survive. So there is, it is not quite as silly as it sounds when first stated, but basically there's not a lot of professionals and researchers who take it as a serious option. Right. Or at least as a major player. Like we may have been, you know, meteorites may have definitely played a role in the
0: chemistry of Earth, but that it's not the source of our building blocks of life. Right, And even if that was something that ended up being, a version of that ended up being accepted, it still doesn't answer the question of how life begins. Exactly. It That might answer how it got here. It might answer how we got some of the pieces we needed. But it still had to start somewhere. But we still have to get that question of how does it begin. And yeah, most scientists investigating this question do operate under the inference that it happened here on Earth. Yes. One way or another. Exactly.
1: So... We are mentioning it because it is part of the discussion, but I, I, am. we are definitely also wanting to make sure we don't oversell. It's a cool sounding <laughs> possibility, yeah. but it is not the one that most people are looking to for the answer because it, it, it also has a lot of issues with it and there's no hard evidence for it. It just makes sense based on certain evidence, but there's no actual evidence for it having happened. So it's missing actual clues. The modern hypotheses for how life started here on earth really are all kind of building off of a quote from darwin not super surprisingly in 1871 it was a letter to joseph hooker where he said and i quote but if and oh what a big if (laughs) in parentheses we could conceive in some small warm little pond with all sorts of amino and phosphoric salts light heat electricity etc present that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes that that could have been. This was, this was the quote that he was given when referring to how life could have started. Mm -hmm. And this is really where the primordial soup originates from is that idea. And all in all, this is kind of what most of the hypotheses are working off of is some idea typically more complicated than this single (laughs) statement. But that, yeah, a a aquatic environment with the right ingredients and the right energy source could spark the combination of a simple structure that could then become more complex as chemical reactions continue. Right. And that's the basis. That's that's kind of what the thoughts are, is that life did not go, but that a thing, a some protein or other organic structure was built just by chemical reactions happening with all the right things being in the right spot together. And then as those reacted with other things, it took a step closer to being right. a more lifelike thing. And then a step closer with another additional reaction and that eventually it took on lifelike qualities.
0: Right. And and much like when we talk about the evolution of different forms in life as we know it, this would have been a an early planet rife with chemical reactions happening everywhere. And then some of them produce something that's a little bit more like life. And then those are reacting potentially in all sorts of different ways. And then some of those undergo a reaction that makes them a little bit more. And it's actually lots of experimentation in the chemical stews of early earth. And this step-by-step proposal, uh, was, Really
1: set out in the 1920s by the Russian scientist Alexander Operin and the English scientist J.B.S. Haldane, who pr- proposed the Operin-Haldane hypothesis, as it's known, mm-hmm. which is that step-by-step and is also where the term primordial soup was coined, I believe. Interesting. And it was built off the idea that if they, if you could get some sort of polymer versus a monomer, so a group of molecules that could replicate itself, you're on your first step to now it is perpetuating itself. It's building more of itself and now it can go on to become more complex. If it's just happening randomly, it's that's not really going to lead us to a more complex life. We need something that can build more of itself via interacting with the chemicals around it. And so that was really the, the initial step that is proposed, that they were proposing. And between... Darwin's suggestion, them fleshing it out a bit more. This is really kind of, we we haven't moved away from that idea since then. Now we're arguing about what and what those first polymers were, those first molecular structures, and how did certain ingredients come about. So that's really where the debate now is. One of the most famous experiments looking at how the primordial soup became the primordial soup was the Miller-Urey experiment in 1953. Very famous. Yes. I, many people, you might have heard this, especially if you're remembering back to your intro biology classes, because that's that's where I remembered I first heard about it. This was a direct attempt to try to investigate the Operan-Haldane hypothesis and Darwin's initial idea of this warm pond with all the ingredients inside it. So they set up a system that had a container full of water, to represent the early ocean. It was connected to glass tubes, one which contained ammonia, methane, and hydrogen, which are mixtures that during that time is what we believed the early Earth atmosphere and and general chemistry to be, you know, to represent. You know, this was representative of early Earth's chemistry. A flame that would heat the water to send water vapor up through the tubes to mix with everything. And then an atmosphere flask, so another open one with electrical sparks to simulate lightning mm-hmm. to kick off the chemical reactions and then they let it run for a few days just reacting doing whatever it was going to do and sure enough the water started to turn a deep red and as they, as one description i saw put it, it became a broth of amino acids Ooh. which seemed to like undeniable evidence that yeah these organic building blocks can form with just natural reactions. Right.
0: Lightning and other energy sources could absolutely be part of it. Right. You don't need already living things to produce these amino acids. Exactly. So we
1: act, we could have the formation of the primordial
0: soup in a
1: very in a non-life environment, in a non-life earth. But there are some issues. This was the first attempt at this.
0: Oh yeah, this was 70 years ago. So
1: there there are things that have been changed and things that were wrong one of the big parts is we don't think the atmosphere was like that anymore right so the premise that they were working under when simulating early earth is incorrect which seems like a real big blow (laughs) to the experiment except people have done their own versions of this experiment over and over again over the years like this was not the only it's the famous one because it was the first one but people have been doing similar tests with the updated knowledge and updated chemicals and gotten very similar results, which actually goes to show what the evidence seems to be showing that these super important building blocks of life can actually be formed kind of readily. Like they're actually not that hard to form and they can form in multiple situations with multiple ingredients present. So it's actually not that big a
0: deal. Yeah. These don't just show that it's possible to get amino acids and the like. From natural environmental reactions, but that it's quite possible. Yeah. And there have also been
1: uh, tests that have tested, that have looked at other energy sources. So there was one that used pressure boxes to simulate deep ocean, hot environments like hydrothermal vents, and were able to do similar things. They were able to produce certain uh, amino acids and even uh, sugars and a couple of other organic molecules. Cool. So... It doesn't just have to be lightning. The Earth would have been, according to these experiments, producing the building blocks of life just by doing what it was doing. So it seems the answer for, but how did these structures come to be, is not as difficult to answer, or not as impossible as it first seemed. Now the more heavily debated question is, what was the first replicating thing? What was the first thing that came together of those organic compounds to start kind of behaving like life and there's two main camps that think that that basically disagree on what the first step of life was one is the metabolism first hypothesis which posits that organic metabolisms needed to be established before we could start getting the other things like genetic material and those other organic compounds coming around it that we needed the chemistry of life happening first and then the other stuff could build up around it the other is the genes first hypothesis which says that genetic material was the first building block that started showing lifelike stuff and everything else kind of came up by happenstance metabolism was a side effect of this the these early gene quote-unquote organisms from just their natural behavior or natural functionings. The other interesting thing about these two hypotheses is that they were both kind of championed by Operin and Haldane, <laughs> respectively. Oh, <interesting. laughs> uh, Operin focused more on the metabolism, while Haldane focused more on the genetics. And that's where their hypothesis diverged. And the metabolism hypoth- the metabolism first hypothesis basically is working under the idea that naturally occurring chemical reactions... You know, and metabolic reactions, you know, the same reactions that are happening in lifelike metabolisms could have formed naturally in certain environments and they point to hydrothermal vents, where a constant source of chemicals and minerals are being pumped out that could feed these reactions without the life form seeking them out. So you could have consistent, continuous metabolism reactions going. And there's, you know, the outside source is the vent or something like the vent. And that these could become self-sustaining that way that through that process. And then as they were happening, they could produce molecules that could act to catalyze more complex reactions and more complex processes that then would take this, these bundle of compounds that are just reacting to a more complex metabolism a more complex chain of reactions. And eventually they might be able to start building actual large complex structures because of the chain of reactions and form proteins and, you know, things like proteins and nucleic acids that then could start doing more similar life stuff, you know, as we see them doing in life today. And that eventually if you got an, As they put, quote unquote, individual that gets encapsulated by these compounds, by some of these compounds and forms a membrane. Now the metabolism's happening in its own environment. Right. And now we
0: have a early proto-life form. Right. Now you have a proto-cell. Exactly. It is a bundle of of chemical reactions closed off as much as it needs to be from the outside world. Exactly. Which goes back to our, our list definition of life,
1: that seclusion. and compartmentalization that they are it's functioning under its own chemical reactions not as just a part of the environment and there is some evidence that structures like this non-genetic structures like this can pass down changes that happen to their structure to the next replicated structure you know the next replicated set of compounds that if something changes in this one it can pass that so there is a sort of hereditary generational reproduction going on kind of so basically you don't need dna to carry information necessarily but there are some major criticisms one of the biggest ones is that there seems to be a limit to the complexity of structures like this that eventually they cap out which means they can't continue to evolve because that's how they're changing is by becoming a more complex reaction so that there there does seem to be a limit to which they can actually evolve under darwinian evolution now this is getting this gets into the chemistry aspects which even i don't fully understand but there it doesn't a lot of people are unsatisfied with how far it seems these sort of structures could have developed and that it doesn't seem like they could go far enough or continue long enough to be
0: considered living so this idea is that we are, we, you end up basically with that bundle of metabolizing things yeah. that might even have its own version of chemical reactions influencing the reactions down the line. Yeah, that there
1: is kind of a, a passing down the generations of information.
0: Right. And then, and then from there, you would potentially move on to a more complex reproductive method. Yeah, that these, this process will eventually build genetics. Right that you have a kind of not reproducing cell doing its metabolism before you have something that is reproducing later on. Yes. And so this is this is sometimes called like the chemistry focused hypothesis. This
1: mm-hmm. is focusing on the chemistry of the cell before the other aspects of the genetics and the past the evolving aspect that we are so familiar with life today. The genes first hypothesis is the one focusing on that that posits that all of those chemical reactions will come as a side effect of a genetic evolving structure as it is able to interact with the environment. It will start to create those chemical reactions and those metabolic processes just step by step. And so the the metabolism is actually secondary. This was proposed uh, in a, uh, though Haldane was the one who leaned more the genetic route, the actual genes first hypothesis was proposed by uh, a number of researchers in the 1960s and then in 1986 the term RNA world was coined heard of that and that is really because there were other ideas of what aspect of genetics you know were the first genes but nowadays it's pretty much in this hypothesis agreed that RNA was most likely the first genetic material to, start this process of uh, of abiogenesis. And for anyone who doesn't remember, RNA, ribonucleic acid is a very similar structure to our DNA except while our DNA is a double strand helix, which means it has two sides spiraling around each other, RNA only has one of those sides. It's basically half a strand of DNA and it does different jobs in the cell in our cells and most life cells, uh, it can still carry genetic information. Like, it is still genetic. But it's not doing the job of our DNA, which is instructing everything to do the jobs it's supposed to do. RNA actually does some of those jobs. It's a, It plays a major role in catalyzing reactions inside the cells. So catalyzing meaning sparking and, you know, getting the reaction to happen. And one of the important jobs it does is synthesize proteins. Is It is a big part in building... And putting together the proteins that our bodies and that biology needs and that the DNA is telling the cell to make. So basically, the idea here is that RNA doing many of the jobs that it does in cells today was what our first reproducing, self-replicating,
0: not organism, but biological entity was. Right. You could get a handful of these nucleic acids, these compounds mm-hmm. that have the ability to carry information but also are reacting to synthesize things. Exactly.
1: And that was one of the first questions was, okay, is great and all, it's made out of nucleic acids. How did they come together in a chain without being put together by a cell, which mm-hmm. is how it's typically done? And there was a an experiment in the 1950s by Sidney Fox and his colleagues that found that amino acids, if heated in in uh, with outside of water, could actually link up. So if they were heated out of solution, they could form amino uh, nucleic acid chains. Hmm. Oh, sorry, no, they could form amino acid chains and basically become proteins. So they they suggested that if something like the, if some water splashed on like a lava flow or something, that could flash dry, you know, flash evaporate and heat that mixture. So you could get proteins happening that way, which could then act as the enzymes to help nucleic acids start forming together. And RNA nucleotides have been found to be able to form together when exposed to certain clay surfaces, that the clay acts as a catalyst as a, a binding site that lets them link together. Right, right. So there are natural ways for both the enzymes critical for the nu- nucleic acids to function and for the nucleic acids to link up.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the important takeaway there, because I, I, often I'll hear about these experiments that are in this condition or this condition, yeah. and they often end up with very specific examples of yes. like splashed onto a rock and then washed back. It, but the, point is that there are natural conditions where you can get these things to happen so even if it doesn't happen the exact way that the experiment shows it happening you can it is possible without a cell to get amino acids linking into proteins under certain conditions and it's possible to get nucleotides linking into an rna chain naturally
1: exactly and that's the point there's one uh well, I said natu- naturally naturally <laughs>
0: Outside of, abiotically, yeah, I guess abiotically. is the better way to
1: say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it nature yet? <laughs> without any life in it? <laughs> what is nature? And there was actually one experiment that made that point because uh, similar experiments have been done to the Yuri Miller where they were like, all right, let's put a bunch of stuff together and see if the more complex things can synthesize without the help of any organic you know, action. Uh, one in 2009 found that you could get what they called precursor compounds is they found that if you took what they called precursor compounds like acetylene and formaldehyde, that those could undergo reactions to produce two, at least two of RNAs nucleotides. So two of the building blocks, uh, through these natural processes. Uh, and when that was criticized for those two compounds being a little too complex of like, yeah, but those are still fancy, like simpler one in 2015, was actually able to get the same reactions with even simpler building blocks and once again showed that with natural energy sources, here it was UV light, Mm -hmm. you can get these structures being built. And uh, they pointed out that on one hand for like a criticism, most of them are different enough that they're not going to happen in the same place at the same time under the same conditions. So you won't get all the building blocks forming together at the same time during the same situation but that they are forming in multiple situations. So, like, Mm -hmm. there's still that variety, and if it's happening across a globe, they said all you'd need is it to form in multiple places and then to have, like, a wave or water wash them into the same spot. Like, they're still forming in water, so all you need is the water then to become mixed for some reason, and there's your primordial soup. Uh, But it would have been a fairly thin broth, as one thing put it. (laughs) It's not as thick and goopy as we often picture the primordial soup being. So it's... uh, It's not like everything would have just been immediately globbing together. It's still, there's a lot of chance and luck with everything coming together the right way. But one of the biggest supporters of the RNA world hypothesis is something called ribozymes, which are RNA catalysts. So it is RNA that is sparking metabolic reactions, you know, chemical reactions. The RNA doing it, which is typically the job of enzymes which are proteins right this is a, a an rna built equivalent to an enzyme exactly so
0: ribozymes are really like one of the big supporters right that that you rna the structure of rna can not only carry information mm-hmm. but also build you know participate in the reactions that build proteins and whatnot and also potentially kick off those reactions
1: and one of the big smoking guns for that is that the ribosome inside our cells that builds proteins for our cells is a ribozyme yeah so we have them in us doing that right now so like proof is in the pudding sort of thing like yes rna can do this stuff by itself as rna and that it could even potentially catalyze reactions to copy itself now we've never naturally seen rna do this but Researchers in labs have been able to synthetically get RNA to do this. Okay. So it can do it. RNA has the capability to copy itself by itself. You know, with the right building blocks, of course. It needs enough to make another thing of RNA, but the RNA can do it. And so we are not settling on an answer here in this podcast because neither (laughs) of us are experts. And because there's not an answer. And because there's not an answer. Well, there is
0: an answer, but we don't
1: have it. but most of the the rna world hypothesis seems to be heavily heavily supported by a lot of you know hands-on direct research and supported by researchers like a lot of researchers seem to lean toward it as a very likely scenario so it, it is it, you know once again if you're going to do a random google you'll probably see rna world given a lot of attention because it uh, a lot of the things that a lot of the answers that or questions that we need answered seem to
0: be answered pretty well by this scenario. Yeah. Well, and, and for me the the RNA first concept I, I I am nowhere near an expert in the chemistry of these questions. No. But it makes intuitive sense to me that once you have reproduction. Yes. Once you have here's a bunch of molecules that do some chemical reactions, and also reproduce themselves. Once you have reproduction, you can have a f- version of natural selection. Exactly. That it's, here's a whole bunch, this, this particular environment that has given rise to the right kinds of amino acids, the right kinds of proteins, the right kind of ribosome, ribo, uh, 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 RNA basically, that have come together to create a very simple early version of a set of molecules that are in a little bubble, they're doing, you know, some reactions, and then able to replicate, right? That molecule is able to then split off some more molecules that do a similar thing. Anything that, any reaction, any property, any trait that that reaction set takes on, that makes it more likely to reproduce again? Exactly. Is going to be inherited the next time it's... So like one of them gets, adds some molecules to the bubble and you have a primitive cell membrane. Mm -hmm. Well, now if it's more likely to reproduce, that's going to get like the reproduction aspect adds a factor of selection that will help refine what that early proto life is doing.
1: And that's really the nice thing about the RNA world uh, point of view is that, While the metabolism first did have a way for it to pseudo-reproduce and pseudo-evolve and had a way for it to chemical react and had a way for it to chemically react, this potentially has legitimate, you know, genetic Darwinian evolution almost from the get-go. Right. And because of ribozymes can do some of that metabolic process
0: or at least build the things that could then start metabolizing. Right. And then if that metabolism <clears throat> is contributing to the energy being brought in to help fuel these reactions, well, now you're getting some of that self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. And if you're powering yourself better and reproducing, that selection is going to then favor those metabolic processes. So, it, it, you know, it's it's one of those things where life to non-life seems like such a jump when you think of it in terms of rock to mushroom. Exactly. But when you think of it in terms of pile of chemical reactions, of of molecules reacting to each other, which is happening everywhere all the time. Yeah, it's
1: a self-perpetuating chemical
0: reaction. Yeah, and then a bubble with self-perpetuating chemical reactions inside of it. Much less of a jump. Yes.
1: And as with most big questions like this, there are tons of people who have proposed and suggested a combination of the two of course that maybe one part of the metabolism built independently somewhere and rna was doing a thing somewhere and then at some point those two were incorporated into one another like there are combination hypotheses that use both and for the you know there's these two main camps but in each there's also subset hypotheses right there's Uh, this version of metabolism was what started first or it started with this thing in this area and same with the rna so like there's multiple camps within those camps. So it get it gets very nit, nitty-gritty very quickly because like you said we're looking for that dividing line. Right.
0: And I think what, what what I I like about the evidence that has been built from these different experiments and that these different hypotheses are building off of is the fact that what they show is that you the ingredients are here. Yes. Like it's it's chemical reactions until you get the right combination of chemical reactions to produce something that is kind of like life, yep. Which then can become more kind of like life, and so on. And it that, that these aren't this isn't a once in a bajillion chance to
2: mm-hmm.
0: get mm-hmm. Uh, the, well, and that's so so often the 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 way it's framed is oh well the the one in a bajillion chance to get these two molecules, and then the next one in a bajillion chance to get, and that no actually. These kinds of reactions are quite possible under a, a variety of conditions. Yes. And it's it's
1: it's a situation where the things that needed to have happened for life to have started evolving. Because <laughs> usually we say for it to have evolved. For it to have started making evolution a thing. Because uh, that's another thing that's very interesting with the origin of life is it's
0: also the origin of evolution. Yes. <laughs> um, because biological evolution is evolution of life. Yep. So technically... <laughs> That's, and that's why uh,
1: the definition of life that is things that can undergo Darwinian evolution also entails that the origin of life is the origin of Darwinian evolution. Right. So you know you have life when Darwinian evolution starts.
0: Right. It's a, yeah, and it's a little... Yeah. You're, you're, you're circling around a yep. little bit. Uh, but it, it really seems, you
1: know, the more and more it's looked at that, the things that needed to happen for life to evolve are actually not that ridiculous. Now it's just... Discussing and arguing how
0: it used those things to come to be, right? And which of those are more likely? Which which of those happens first? first? Right? Which of those fit better with what we see in our early Earth and in life today? It's it's something that I like to say that so often in science, especially when you're looking at these questions from the outside, it can it can be easy to say, "Well, we don't have an answer, so we don't know." Yes. And I, I like to point. I like to point out there is a difference between not knowing and having no idea. Exactly. We have tons of ideas. Yeah. And tons of evidence and tons of support. It's just that it's a really the, the hard part is knowing which parts of our hypotheses are true to what actually happens in the real world.
1: Well, it's I, I saw one quote in in one of the articles that said the fact that abiogenesis happened is not questioned. No, yeah, It has to have happened. Yeah. It has to have happened. There was
0: once no life. Yeah.
1: Now there is life. And that it happened here on earth is basically not argued. The mechanism by which it happened is what's debated. And so, yeah, it's, it's not that we are just floundering without, without a direction or, or cause. It's just that we don't have the solid answer, but we have lots of evidence for the potential answers. And, As we learn more, eventually we'll learn something that suddenly lines up Mm -hmm. with a number of those and negates a number of those. And now we can be a step closer. Right. You know, but asking all these questions and doing these experiments is still important because, you know, saying like, hey, it could be RNA. But then if we don't test, well, yeah, but could RNA even do that? Right. You know, did it do that? We don't know. Can it do it? Yes. Now we know. We know whether it can. And if it couldn't, then that negates that question altogether. So we know what's potentially possible. Now it's just which one of those happened.
0: Yeah. There is, of course, the follow-up question, uh, which is why doesn't it happen anymore? Yeah. Which is, because it doesn't happen nowadays. Yep. We have never seen this happen. And the argument that I often hear is that because the world is no longer conducive yeah. to that happening, well, now that... it is a world governed by life mm-hmm. that does not support the kind of conditions that you would need to get new life developing the way that it would have in the early earth.
1: My my first assumption and I'm not a, an origin of life researcher would just be that the things that were the building blocks of life and first synthesized life in in primordial earth's oceans
0: are now being used by life. Yeah. Like that yeah, life is interrupting the well it's 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 funnily like it, w- one way that is commonly pointed out is most life on Earth today uses and needs oxygen and mm-hmm. thus has produced a world full of oxygen. Yeah. But oxygen would probably have been poison mm-hmm. to that early life. Another one that I always think about is stromatolites, which are the most ancient fossil evidence we have. These microbial mats are extremely rare today. Yeah. Very, very rare. And part of that is because there's a lot of things that eat microbial mats. Exactly. So they don't get the chance to form in most places. Well, like, where are you going to get, you know, the, the random amino
1: acids and nucleic acids and lipids to to start building a new form of life when those are all being used to build the current life? Right. They like, keep getting vacuumed. up. Yeah, exactly. It, it was, It's like when you have an established economy, you know, beforehand it was easy. Yeah, you could just go find food out in the forest. But now that's my forest. Right. I own that forest. <laughs> every boar in it. You dare to kill a king's deer? Uh, <laughs> like now, you're. It's part of a set functioning ecosystem that doesn't
0: allow a newcomer. Which brings us back to the point that it's very difficult to answer these questions on a planet that is wholly different. Yeah. From the planet where it happened, there is another point that I always think about when we talk about this, and I like going over the the chemical precursor ideas. Because one of the sort of givens in a lot of these conversations, one of the sort of basic assumptions that people tend to latch onto is this idea that life originating is a rare mm-hmm. one in a cabajillion ca- event. That Yeah, it's, it's insane that it even happened. Right. And part of that makes sense because as far as we know, it only happened once. There, yeah, we only have proof that it's happened one time ever. That being said, the fact that the chemical reactions necessary for this are, like, the the biomolecules are not particularly uncommon. Yep. The fact that the evidence suggests that these kinds of chemical reactions can happen in a variety of conditions. And uh, the point that I've seen others make, the earliest evidence of life on Earth, you know, three and a half billion years old or so, and it is generally agreed. Is generally inferred that life probably originated around, by the l- later part of the Hadean. Yes. Right? Around 4 billion years ago is probably where we would have seen. Somewhere in that ballpark. Somewhere in there is where we would see it. And I've seen some people point out that prior to that, for a while prior to that, the Earth was utterly tumultuous. Yes. Changing conditions, impacts. Uh, yeah, a violent t- form... You know, planet being birthed right in its formation so it is quite possible that for at least some part of the earliest millions of years in earth, the, the, of the planet earth it there wasn't a place for these things mm-hmm. to even possibly happen and when you think about it life shows up on earth pretty early on in the earth the in, in earth history and depending on how long that time period was, that the Earth's surface barely existed. Mm-hmm. And depending on how early that first life actually did make its appearance on the planet, life might have originated on the planet nearly as early as life could have originated on the planet exactly and i always have this little thought rattling around in the back of my mind that there is reason to think and again i am not an expert there are other more informed people dancing yes. asking these questions i can't get over the thought that there is reason to think life originating might not actually be that oh yeah ridiculous and if i can bring this completely full circle this won't make any sense to the people out there who skipped the news section
2: <laughs>
0: we looked at chameleons yes and we said wow how bizarre what an unusual combination of traits that how 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 exciting it is to live at a time where we got to see this one-of-a-kind creature and then we go to the fossil record and the fossils record like yeah we did that At least twice. Yeah, aren't they cool? Here's our version. Yeah, here's the we did the (laughs) that it's easy to look at what we have and go, wow, one of one of a kind. What are the odds?
1: How could you even? We literally can't even conceive.
0: And that the fact that then we look at like, all right, Mars has similar conditions to early Earth. Yep. And Titan has similar conditions to early Earth. And some of those places
1: even have hydro like evidence of hydrothermal vents.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that like and this takes us back to episode 26, astrobiology. Maybe it's not that ridiculous a thing. Yeah. For the right chemical compounds to create a bundle of self-sustaining reproducing chemical reactions. Yes.
1: Well, that it there's a reason that if you go Ask a biologist, do you think aliens exist? Vast majority of them, at least vast majority of the ones I've met, will say, yeah, for sure. That's what I think. If you ask, do you think we've ever been visited? That's where they go, well, no. Right. Uh, well, what do you mean by aliens? <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> does alien life exist somewhere? Almost certainly. I would be shocked. Like, it, it, it's, it is mathematically unlikely that it doesn't. Like... The maths doesn't support that we're the only form of life just when you crunch the numbers, no yeah. matter what way you cut it. So yeah, even if it's not super duper common, it's also not unlikely.
0: <laughs> yeah, it might be, again, it is the blinders of living at the time and place we do. It might be unlikely here. Yes. Where we are. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's not that, it, maybe it's not as big a deal as we like to think it is, and how how incredible would it be to have that? Add that to the list of all the things. We're like, well, we humans produce music, mm-hmm. and we are unique. Well, okay, there's the there's whales and birds over there. So, well, we humans have societies. Okay, well, here are ants. Yep. And here are be we we farm. Okay, well, here's this other thing. Yeah. We are alive. Yeah, we're just part of it. How cool would it be? To have that also ticked off the list of things we think are unique and special about us. Yes. So as, as you said in the beginning of the episode, this gets philosophical. It gets very philosophical very quickly. And it's, it's, I'm glad that we got to do this topic. Yes. I think this is a worthy, a worthy entry for our new journey into triple digit episode numbers.
1: I th- yeah, I think this is a good way to kick it off. This was, this was a awesome episode with an awesome topic suggested by awesome people sure was but before we wrap up we have some
0: patron questions yeah you know what we have this long building list of patron questions so as uh, longtime listeners will know we answer questions from patrons at a certain level yeah. it's one of the goodies you get on patreon you submit it we answer it on the podcast and we have this list building up and we thought hey we're celebrating for episode 100 why not throw a few of them out there? Yeah,
1: answer a question per digit.
0: So we've picked a few patron questions. They'll be pretty short. We, we picked a, a couple of quick ones yes. to knock out here on episode 100. The first one is from Sam, who says, I like to listen to episodes multiple times because I've forgotten most of it after a few months. How much do you, the hosts, retain from each episode? Especially when one of you leads the discussion and the other one is following. Mm-hmm. I I find it varies, a lot.
1: Like there are some episodes I seem to remember really clearly and then others that like if if you ask me what we said I like I could I wouldn't even be able to quite
0: quote the outline we used. Oh yeah. Like I retain bits mm-hmm. and and definitely I remember my episodes more clearly than I remember yours. Absolutely no. Cuz yeah, I'm doing the research and mm-hmm. I'm learning a bunch of stuff and then I'm leading it and I'm doing the whole thing. But no, I honestly I also forget a lot of what we've gone over in the past.
1: I'm pretty sure for me, the trend is, and this is, you know, not a huge revelation. I'm sure for anybody, the topics that I enjoyed more and it's, I enjoy all the episodes we do. It's not like we've ever done one. It's like, okay. And now we're going to talk about natural. So like, you know, I'm never hating it, but there are definitely some topics where it's like, I, I, I personally will, you know, enjoyed the the episode on horses because I, I like that topic. I liked mm-hmm. it before it was requested. And those typically stick with me a little bit more. I think typically if the notes were easier for me to take, which factors into that, I remember it more. If I was having to like really trudge through because it, I was having a difficult time with the notes, those don't seem to
0: stick as well. I remind myself that Uh, repetition is a good educational tool. Oh yeah. So if we're saying the same things on multiple episodes of the podcast, that's just for the benefit of the listeners yeah, and not at all because we forgot (laughs) that we already said a thing. Really what it means is we have to go back and listen to our own episodes in order. I've done that. Yep. I've definitely like, I'll, I'll get a script to write for one of my freelance positions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it'll be like, write about this. And I'm like, well, as it, as it turns out, I know a guy who did an episode Mm -hmm. about this topic. Um, although I don't, I very rarely listen to our podcast. Nope. I don't want to, I don't want to listen to that. That's
1: I was going to say like <laughs> <laughs> within the last year, I'd be willing to relisten to, you know, episodes more readily. But as soon as you're like, as soon as you're like, Hey, re listen to the first ten or twenty. It's
0: like, oh, do I have do to... it some people will reach yeah. out and be like, I listened to episode yep. five and it was great and I'm like, I will was take it? I'll take was it really? <laughs> Are you sure I'll take your word for it.
1: We were so new <laughs> <laughs> Our next patron question is from Cheryl, who asks very straightforward and simply, Does David have the entire episode list memorized?
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah he does. Not the details. <laughs> no. But no, the numbers. Yes. Absolutely. Well, name Give me a number between 1 and 100. 1 uh, and 100, let's go with 43. Uh, the Great American Biotic Interchange. It's the Gabby. Gabby, yep, <laughs> that's the Gabby. It's good stuff. That doesn't, listen, uh, so a little bit, I, we've talked about this before, and it's I think we actually did have a question at one point that was about this. Um, that's not like, I don't have a photographic memory, Mm-mm. which is a thing that I don't, I'm not convinced it exists. Everything I've heard and read about it is that that's not actually, it's not, actually. It's not
1: something you're born with. I like,
0: don't. It's not that I like have a a perfect memory for these things. It's one, I'm good at memorizing lists, but also I go through this list over and over Mm -hmm. and over because I go through our stats and I go through our downloads and I go through like all that stuff. And also, if I'm being honest, it's become a bit of a shtick. Yep. So I do test myself on the list on a fairly regular basis to make sure I don't forget them because now I'm proud of it (laughs) and I want to be able to keep doing it. (laughs) Well, you
1: you also had previous practice because this is not the first lengthy list of numbers and names you've memorized. That is true.
0: (laughs) It is is absolutely not. Some people will ask, how long do you think you'll be able to keep that up? And I will say, as of the end of 2020, I think that I will be able to do it for a good 898 episodes. Yes. (laughs) We have another question one more question before we wrap it up this is another question from Sam for Will specifically um do you have any great stories or advice related to aquarium psychom that you'd like to share
1: ooh absolutely so yeah the working at the aquarium the biggest difference i noticed doing psychom there is like at the museum you have lots of people who are interested in the topics but with animals people have a much more visceral reaction sometimes good but also dealing with people who are scared of the animals or or only know stereotypes about the animals you know the things that show in movies and so the the biggest thing i always tried to keep in mind is that every animal was just an animal and to present it to them that way and to keep and to keep my temperament sending that message Uh, because i understand the temptation to want to upsell the fact that it's like, Ooh, I'm carrying a snake. Like that's fun. And with the right groups, you can get a laugh. But I, I always leaned toward, I treated every animal with kind of a more midline where I was still excited about them, but I didn't, I didn't treat that the shark was more exciting than the pufferfish, Right. Or that it was, you know, a better topic. I, yes, we talked about it more because that's what people ask questions about, but it's, The shark is just another
0: animal. It's not a movie star. Right. This was something that would come up at the nature center that I worked at, is especially when you're handling animals, Mm -hmm. what you're doing with them, irrespective of the things you're saying, yes, how you are interacting with that animal is a model for other people. It sends huge amounts of messages. And that comes, that the way you're holding them, your attitude towards them, your tone of voice is modeling for other people how they should react to Mm -hmm. that. Even if you're not saying, even if you're saying the right things, which is why I always am aware of and annoyed by documentaries. Yeah. When like the shark will come on and maybe you're saying all the right things about sharks. actually correct and interesting. But if the music is horror movie music, you're sending the wrong message.
1: We actually had to petition uh, my aquarium to change the shark tunnel music because of that. Uh, (laughs) and it yeah it was the same issue and and so for me it goes the two directions on i don't treat scary animals like they're scary i you know i acknowledge that people are afraid of them and there were times where i had to acknowledge it's like yeah we're talking about an alligator we're in florida these live literally in your backyard they are potentially dangerous like you had to acknowledge that but i didn't treat them like they were a scary animal i didn't use that as part of my teaching tool and on the flip side, I also never treated an animal like they were boring. I never was like, right. oh, that's just a box turtle. Mm-hmm. No, that's a box turtle. That's It's a box turtle. You want to talk about box, like
0: I, I keeping had a, a level treatment. The first time I ever wrote for SciShow, my first script that I ever wrote for SciShow was about poisonous snakes, rhabdofus, yes. uh, the killback snakes. And that was the idea. That was the shtick. It's like, hey. There is a type of a group of snakes that are poisonous in addition to being venomous. Cool, cool, cool. It was my first ever script and I wrote the whole thing and I had put a, a title like a placeholder title. Oftentimes I will let editors decide on the, the title because yeah. that's a whole different game.
1: there's a whole different list of considerations. making
0: headlines and titles and what the editor and this person was a great editor. like this is not at all a, a, a knock on any other person's participation. But the title that either the editor or someone along the way had ended up putting together was the title was Beware, Poisonous Snakes. And the idea was, okay, exciting language, exclamation mark. That's going to be the title. And I remember seeing it and going, this is my first writing job. Do I do I be the guy? Am I going to be the nitpicky one? And I did. I, I made a note where I said, can we say behold? Yeah. Behold, Poisonous Snakes, because I I try as best I can not to use language of fear, yeah. Especially when it comes, and I and I, I whenever I say that, I think we do that a lot. You know, we'll talk about things on the podcast as terrifying. Oh yeah. But I try not to make it about the animal. I try not to use it in a context where somebody might come away from it thinking that they should actually be afraid well, or I mean, wary or uncomfortable yeah. around a certain group of animals.
1: When I, the, you know, there's definitely. Uh, a difference between comedic, you know, when, when we're trying to say something for the sake of uh, a joke we think's funny, um, yeah. which <laughs> um, is the important part. Yep. Uh, versus when you're, you know, answering questions about the animal or talking about the animal in front of the animal, like so. There's, you know, there's definitely times and places for things. You know, it's not that we can't make jokes or you know that I don't enjoy the movie Jaws sort of thing. But yeah, that was my biggest experience is. Especially because I feel like for many people, I feel like many people might be surprised how calm it is for people to be actually utterly terrified of name an animal. Like I've met people who are afraid of lizards and hermit crabs and as ridiculous as that might seem to someone who is more comfortable with them for them, it's very real and treating that animal with the same energy and mentality as any other animal Helps level the playing field,
0: which is why it's always fun when we. It's it's why being on the podcast and taking requests from listeners has been so much fun because a listener will suggest a topic and they'll say, "I want an episode about, yeah, uh, oh yeah, about reefs or about grass, yeah, or about this topic that." What that then means to me when I look at the topic is all right. I now it is my responsibility to get excited about this yes. thing. Yes and it's so much fun to then find what's exciting about or to research into what i think is exciting about mm-hmm. something because that's it it's not only part of good science communication to be excited and engaging but it's fun to exactly. then so i we could talk about these things all oh, yeah. the time and uh, again hey we're doing our end of the year q and a so if you have more questions along these lines absolutely look at that form Hey, thanks to those people for asking their patron questions. Thanks to our requesters. Keep your eyes out for our bonus 100-episode retrospective episode. Keep your eyes out for the form for our end-of-the-year Q&A. Link in the description. Link on our social media. Ask us whatever questions you want. We will answer them however long it takes. Hashtag whatever it takes.
1: (laughs) Patrons, keep an eye out for our, our chat that we'll be setting up. And if you're interested in being part of
0: that, check out our Patreon. Thanks for sticking with us through this super-sized special episode 100 of the Common Descent podcast. It was a lot of fun. Here's here's looking to a uh, hundred more. Our next to our next milestone. Yeah.
2: which,
1: Listen,
0: I'm uh, triple digits is old hat. Right. Yeah. I'll I'll see you at a thousand. Yep.
1: We got to get to that next digit. That's <laughs> that's the only reason we're doing this now. That's it. That's that's
0: that's it. It's all <laughs> it's all a, a drag from here. It's a crawl. <laughs>
1: Goodbye for now, everyone. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.